don't need that heroin And I don't need that cocaine I don't shoot no acid in my eyes I'm not bathing here in lidocaine I ain't robbing no pharmacy I don't do any more harm to me I ain't drinking up any alcohol I ain't wondering if this powder contains any fentanyl I'm not smoking crack and directing traffic in an intersection naked I don't need to get some weird infection I'm not puking in my neighbor's sink I'm not crushing up some Vicodin in a sausage link shoving it in my I'm just listening to Dopey it's a podcast always available like the memories of my past I'm just listening to Dopey 24-7 7 days a week 365 days a year doodles to Chris good so bad good so fucking bad it's good so bad Flushed all my drugs down the toilet Why the fuck did I do that? I miss them No, I don't Yes, I do Just kidding What? Hey, hey, hey It's time for Dopey And I'm gonna sing a song for you Chris gonna show you a thing or two. You'll have some fun now with me and all the gang. Learning from each other while we do our thing. Nah, 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 gonna have a good time. Hey, hey, hey. Nah, 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 gonna have a good time. Danny Chris coming out to the music and fun. If you're not careful, you might learn something before it's done. Hey, hey, hey. This episode of Dopey is brought to you by our very good friends at Oro Recovery. They're located in sunny Southern California, Malibu, somewhere in Western Los Angeles. They were created by our friend Bob Forrest and his friends, Evan, Jared, and Bob. Their mission was to create a great treatment center that relied on compassion and connection rather than control. Their team has many decades of experience in treating co-occurring mental illnesses, including SMI. Everyone that we know that has gone to Oro raved about the treatment, raved about the care, raved about the amenities, which included things like sound bath meditation, equine therapy, surfing, the potentially spiritually transformative sweat lodge, and so much more. The detox, comfortable as it can be when you're kicking such uncomfortable substances as heroin, benzos, crack, alcohol, ketamine, you name it. If you're fucked and you're looking for the best place in sunny Southern California to get treatment, I strongly, strongly, strongly suggest Oro. Check them out at ororecovery.com.
This episode of Dopey is also brought to you by our very good friends at Sober Buddy. What is Sober Buddy? The real question is, what isn't Sober Buddy? Well, Sober Buddy isn't a restaurant, but it is an app. It is an amazing digital tool for your toolbox, which when you open up the toolbox, you are transported to a community of sober people, sober curious people, and people who need you, who want to help you get sober and and need you to help them get sober, which is the nature of community. It's one person helping another. They do 11 or 12 Zooms a week. I host a Zoom every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We have a really, really good thing going at our Zoom. Please come. There are other Zooms I hear are almost as good, but you know how that is. They also have an app, which is a super supportive kind of social media page where you check in and you get support and you post pictures and all that good stuff. They also have sober challenges. If you're looking for an app to help you stay sober or get sober, check them out at the App Store or at the Google Play Store. Is it just Google Play or the Google Play Store? Either way, get sober, buddy. Get it now. There is another amazing app I need to mention. It is called The Phoenix. The Phoenix's whole goal is that addicts and alcoholics in recovery should have fun. And the Phoenix want to facilitate that fun. How do they facilitate fun like that? With things like pickleball, with things like music, with things like DopeyCon. The Phoenix was incredibly instrumental in our DopeyCon. We're doing another storytelling event totally connected to the Phoenix. All you need to do to join the Phoenix and participate in their sober fun is 48 hours sober time. If you have two days, you are eligible for free sober fun. Check them out at thephoenix.org slash dopey and find out what fun stuff is going on near you. Is it a CrossFit class? Is it a nature hike? Is it music? Is it art? Check out thephoenix.org slash dopey podcast and join the fun movement of the Phoenix. If you are looking to get amazing stickers made, and I'm talking super high quality sick stickers and you want them fast and you want them cheap i have to suggest customstickers.com they have been making our stickers for a while now i love customstickers.com i really do i wouldn't say it if i didn't if any of you dopes out there in dopey land want one free sticker send me an email and i will send you one sticker or you could buy a pack of stickers, or you can sign up for Patreon and get a ton of free shit, or I guess you're paying for it, but you get a lot of free shit. Custom stickers can make you custom stickers. So if you're looking to make your own stickers or just order some really cool stickers, go to customstickers.com, start sticking, use the code DOPEY20 and get 20% off already cheap and super high quality stickers. Looking for stickers? How many times can I say stickers? Get them at customstickers.com. And if you're looking for another recovery podcast, I need to suggest Recovery in the Middle Ages, hosted by Nat and Mike, two super smart suburban dads trying to make sense out of a life in recovery in the Middle Ages. Meaning if you're a middle-aged dad or you're a woman who wants to know about how middle-aged dads think, Mike and Nat cover everything. 12-step, the current 
books and crazes and trends in recovery. Check him out at recoveryinthemiddleages.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, here's the fucking show. So hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. My name is Dave. This week we have an English comedian named Jeff Leach. Super funny. He's also a voiceover actor and a presenter, which in England is just a TV host. But I think you guys are going to love him. So I am beyond excited to bring you another episode of Dopey. I really am. (laughs) It's amazing. I really look forward to doing this show every week. And when I finally get to do it, I wake up in the morning and I'm like, ah, going to record the show. So I want to thank everybody for listening to the show, because if you guys didn't listen, the show wouldn't even exist. So would there be a dopey podcast without the dopey nation? The answer is no. So thank you guys. I want to quickly say, um, I want to, I'm sure you guys all know that Matthew Perry a uh, famous TV star, movie star, died last week. And it just made me think of everybody else that has died that we've known and that we haven't known and how deadly, obviously deadly addiction can be. And and if if you're an addict and you're not in recovery, maybe it's time to take action. Maybe you want to die. I mean, that's a weird position to be in when you want to die, but you just keep using. I was in that position. Now I'm very, very excited to be alive. And I know that my excitement and fun is directly related to the amount of work I do in my recovery. Unfortunately, I don't know many people who are sober, you know, in recovery, happy, joyous, and free that don't participate in their recovery. I don't talk about recovery too much. I mean, maybe I do. I have no idea how much I talk about recovery on the show. Uh, I got a note that made me think of this, though. It's from a hardcore dope named Sally, and she wrote, From another bozo on the bus, another believer, I really love when your show gets a little programmy, and I love that's not your focus, too, because I'm also a pick-everything-aparter, and sometimes I'm little like, fuck you, you program, but also thank you for saving my life. So the balance is real good, man. Anyway, loved this conversation with Chris P. a lot. And she's talking about last week with Chris Paulson. So I appreciate that, Sally. And I, you know, I don't want the show to be super programmy, but in the wake of any death, I think it's important to remind people who are struggling that you don't have to be, you know, it's, it's just that simple. And I want to talk about another Matthew, and that's original dope fucking the originator of Waiting for Tonight. And if you're not on the Dopey Nation Facebook group, you should join. You should also join now the official Dopey Podcast Facebook group, which is another hub for dopes out there in the Dopeyverse or Doposphere or whatever you like to call it. Matthew Wiedemeyer Carroll has been listening to the show for many years. He, I think he started listening before he went to prison. Then he went to prison, wrote Chris a letter from prison, made me a dopey prison ID, you know, leather, thatched leather thing that I still have. Then he came out. He relapsed. Um, 
but he started this tradition called Waiting for Tonight. And what Waiting for Tonight is, is he posts a picture of, he lives on, you know, somewhere out in Iowa and he has a million cats on some kind of, it's not a farm, but it seems very farmy. It's like very rural. And he posts a picture of his cats and then everybody responds and says, waiting, waiting, waiting. And they post pictures of their cats or dogs or children or whatever. I think I posted a pastrami sandwich last week in it. But the point is that it's a tradition that Matt started in Dopey Nation. And I was thinking about it. I was talking with some dopes about it, actually. And my recollection of the beginning of that tradition, and I could be wrong, was right after Chris died, we did that show with his girlfriend, Annie. And I think the future of the show was in jeopardy. And I think Matt didn't know if the show was going to come out. So he posted waiting for tonight and it just made me realize that there were people waiting for the show, which made me feel really good. Now I just heard from Matt and cause I want Matt to post waiting for tonight in the new dopey podcast, Facebook group, which I would love for you guys to join. If you're on Facebook, I don't know why I think somehow it will help the show. If you're listening to the show, I don't know how joining the Facebook group will help the show, but just join it. Do me a favor and, and get involved with it. Matt said he didn't post. Oh, I just talked to him and he said he didn't post a waiting for tonight till 2019, but I think he's wrong. Matt's also been all fucked up and relapsing, but more importantly than that is Matt has a week back today. So welcome back, Matt. And, uh, Get active, man. Get out there. Get back in it. Look for Matt telling his saga of relapse and return on Dopey Patreon very soon. And Matt loves Dopey, and Dopey loves Matt. Matt came to DopeyCon. He bought like $700 in Dopey merch. I, I hated that he started relapsing. He went to a Sober Buddy Zoom drunk, not realizing that it was a, a Sober Buddy Zoom. But we love Matt, so... Everybody, take a moment to uh, celebrate Matt with us. One more time for Matthew Wiedemeyer Carroll. I got another quick note I want to read. It's from a guy named Al. He wrote, my name is Al. I live in Laramie, Wyoming. I have 496 days clean and sober. Thanks, thanks for your podcast. I love it. I listen to it every day at work now and will tell my story later. Thank you. And then a couple of emojis. So that's nice. We like that. Let's hear it for Al one more time. And I got another email I want to read. Here, hold on, enough of that. Okay, but before we read this email, and I really love this email, before we read this email from Kelly, I need to say that this episode of Dopey is brought to you by BetterHelp. I have been struggling, so I got into therapy. I needed help. So I went and got help, and I have to say it's made my life better. It has improved my life. This is my third week, and I have to say that the last three weeks were better than the three weeks before it. If you're thinking of starting therapy, why don't you try BetterHelp? It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited for your schedule. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and you get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists anytime for no extra additional charge at all. I've been struggling just with everything. Anxiety, family stuff, fear, and talking it out just gives me perspective. 
Let therapy be your perspective. Let it be your map with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash DopeyPodcast today and you get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash DopeyPodcast. Get that 10% and let therapy help to take you where you want to go with BetterHelp. And if you want to hear yourself on Dopey, you send in an email or a voicemail to DopeyPodcast at gmail.com. I just got this email from Kelly. I love it. Kelly, you get some socks. All right, here we go. It says, hey, Dave, I've been meaning to write for a long time. I've been a semi-long listener, participant in the Dopey Nation, but have been a bit absent recently. So many things you've talked about lately lead me to finally write this. Every underground community you've talked about, I've been a part of. I've been a deadhead, a street kid drinking sidewalk slams outside the methadone clinic, a hitchhiker, an addict of many substances and other fun behaviors. Dopey is a constant must for me. So many good interviewees and discussions around relatable music groups and substance abuse. I'm currently a licensed social worker, a harm reduction proponent and volunteer at music festivals and in a psychedelic assisted therapy certification program. So I feel I could answer questions and such if you ever had any. I think Ray also referred to me one time as the girl from Missouri who loves ketamine on a Patreon episode or something. Ha ha. Also known as uh, Calais on DN and social media. I know Calais. Anyway, I love that you talk about so many different areas in recovery, not just abstinence and AA, but all of it. I went to rehab recently for the first time twice earlier this year and have been sober from alcohol and coke for about six months now. One of my best friends, R.I.P. Elliot Head, recently, who was young, he, he was born in 89 and died in 2023, recently OD'd and died about a month ago, and my brother also just OD'd two weeks ago. Man, so I've really been going through it. Dopey and the Dopey Nation are a source of comfort and support. I went to some Zoom meetings while I was in rehab, and Dopey Nation was the first place I posted about both of these things, rehab and loss, and the support, supportive response from everyone was amazing. I tried to get Ellie to come to Dopey meetings, and he wanted to, but he just never made it. Also, shout out to Fentanyl J, who's a real-ass mofo, and Hyde Ray, who's a sweetheart. Lastly, Earl, who wrote in on the last episode, who struggled with Kratom and Ketamine, Earl, that's me too, dog. Alcohol-free, but still in and out of using those less destructive but still so annoying substances that trick us into thinking we need them to have fun or be okay. Hoping I'll get this full-time sobriety thing soon. One area I struggle with and would love to hear more discussion about is sex addiction, which for me is not about the sex but about the validation, attention, and affection I crave. This has really become prevalent since my sobriety from alcohol, and I know it's related to dopamine attachment and a need to fill that hole, LOL, left by removing the sauce. My sponsor has told me to go to Sex and Love Addicts Anonymous, SLA, and I might. We'll see. I'll leave you with a quick as possible dopey story. When I was around 21, I was hitchhiking with a rainbow kid named Spatula. If you're listening, Spatula, fuck you. <laughs> and someone we picked up, some guy named Spike. You were cool. Spatula had recently, I think Spatula's the greatest name I've ever heard. Spatula recently bought a car, apparently from some lady, for a dollar. 
And all he had was a paper they both signed saying, blah, blah, is selling this car to blah for a dollar. I was driving, of course, because I was the only one with a license and was the one spanging and flying signs for cash. I wonder what spanging is. Uh, because I was a female. I was also selling opium. I love this story. What is spanging? Where do you get opium? Anyway, <clears throat> let's see. I uh, blah, 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 blah. Spanging. I was also selling opium and had about eight grams on me when we got pulled over in Minnesota after driving days and days on our way to 10,000 Lakes Festival. We had all decided to splurge on a couple bottles of rum since we finally get close and we're all drinking. First time we get pulled over, the cops looked at all sus at all of us suspiciously uh, for some reason, but let us go. Woohoo. About 10 minutes later, I'm buzzed and free freak on a leash by corn comes on. So I lean over, turn it up and swerve a bit. We get pulled over again and I have the eight grams of opium in my bra. I get arrested for DUI and the other two are told to leave town. So I'm in the back of the cop car, knowing I'm going to get strip searched and I'm drunk as fuck. I somehow slide my hand out of the cuff without the cop noticing and grab the bag and shove it as far up my lady pocket as I can. Slip it back on and voila. Of course, I do get strip searched, but it's not found. So I avoided a felony charge and I'm now in jail with all of this. I don't know why I did it but I gave it to a hippie chick there named Sunshine who was in there for manslaughter, and I just told her to be careful handling the bag. Ha <laughs> ha. I convinced them to release me, which they do under the guise that I'll return to Illinois to my mom's house. But instead, I crossed over the border into Canada the next day and continued my traveling adventures. Anyway, I have a recording of a Good So Bad cover, which I'll send sometime, and feel free to cut any of this out since it's so long. And then she gives me the address, which is very smart. She's the first person that sent in a dopey story that gave me the address. So, Kelly, you get socks. Fucking toodles for Chris, Hot Wheels, Elliot, and anyone... Oh, Ellie was Elliot. And anyone else who's floating around up there laughing because we're still dealing with day-to-day -day crap... And they're probably having a great time reuniting with spirit. We'll all return to one day. That gives me the chills. So much love, DN. And that's Kelly. And that is a fucking great story. And you can, I mean, you can have fun without kratom and ketamine and sex addiction. I mean, sometimes it will be less fun in some ways, but the, the lows won't be as low. I was, I was actually at a meeting today and I was sharing about like, you know, how much overeating I, I do and how much shit talking I do and like the decision that I make before I do those things. And the result of those things is I feel badly about myself, but I make the same decision around doing positive things like praying or going to a meeting or talking to a sponsor or a sponsee. And then the effect is positive. So I'm just going to say this. I know it's very programmy stuff. If you do good stuff, you will feel good. If you do stuff that you don't think is good, you won't feel as good. It's just as simple as that. In stu good stuff in, good stuff out. All right. A place that taught me some of that and a sponsor of DopeyCon IV and basically the birthplace of Dopey was, of course, Mountainside Recovery. That's where I met Chris. 
you know, I remember it. I remember it like it was yesterday, sort of, in a haze, in the Xanaxy haze where I had a broken nose and a black eye in the smoking section. I met Chris at Mountainside. And Mountainside is an amazing place to get sober. It has a full continuum of care, which includes detox, residential, long-term residential, outpatient, and recovery coaching. They have a family program that is incredibly effective. Chris's family loved the family program at Mountainside. I think my family was so fed up with me that we didn't even do it. But the family program is amazing. The aftercare at Mountainside is second to none. The guy who's producing the uh, the time dopey piece went to Mountainside, and he's still involved in the aftercare and the coaching, and he he loves it. Bill Blaber, dopey alum, is running their coaching. So if you're in the Northeast and you're looking for an amazing place to get treatment, if you're fucked and you're willing to go to Connecticut, check out Mountainside.com. It's where Dopey was born. That's pretty cool, I think. That's an amazing thing. Maybe Mountainside should be advertising Dopey, too. Maybe we should be in their literature. The greatest podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit was born here at Mountainside, Canaan, Connecticut. Oh, shit, I forgot to say, Steve Poltz, the amazing storyteller, Steve Poltz did that theme song at the front of the show. And if you didn't listen to it, you should go back and listen to it. And if you didn't hear the Steve Poltz episode, you should go back and listen to Steve Poltz. People think Steve Poltz was the greatest dopey guest in the history of the show, which is saying something. Also, what was your favorite dopey theme song beginning? Was it fucking Steve Poltz's? Was it Ray Brown's Home Sweet Heroin? Was it Sam Clark's Cheers song? Was it... Al from England's Pay Attention Dopey Nation. Was it Br'er Brian's Dopey? Was it fucking, um, I played that one last week, the Bailey. It's Dopey, the podcast show with a lot of love for recovery. They talked about shit, you know it's really dumb. Or, um, what's his face? Jake from West Virginia, Dopey Show. Or Margaret Cho's original dopey theme. There's so many dopey songs to choose from. Was it Ray Brown's uh, This Dopey Dopey Podcast? What was your favorite dopey theme song? Send in an email or a voicemail to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. I totally want to know. And if you are down south and you're looking for a place to get treatment, I have to suggest Imagine Recovery. Imagine Recovery was another incredible benefactor to DopeyCon. And we wouldn't have had such an amazing DopeyCon if Imagine wasn't there and wasn't so cool. Imagine was founded by my friends Chris and Felicia. They had me at Jazz Fest. They believe in approaching addiction and recovery in a different way. At Imagine, love, dedication, and understanding of behavioral health are the touchstones for all who pass through its stained glass doors. And it's a beautiful place. I, I went to meetings there. I met a lot of the staff there. Imagine Steady Heartbeat is the engine of transformation in so many lives, a true example of the alchemic possibilities of treatment. I feel privileged to be a part of this quirky and accepting family and honored to witness its expanding ripple of recovery. That's in their description, but I feel honored too. Do you remember Jason Ricci? Amazing, satanic, ex-satanic 
incredible blues harmonica player who had one of my favorite shows ever. You know, that's a, a interesting head-to-head, the Jason Ricci, Steve Poltz head-to-head. Jason Ricci went to Imagine. You can, too. Check them out at imaginerecovery.com. If you want to go to New Orleans to get well, check out Imagine. Just out of curiosity, who did you prefer on Dopey, Steve Poltz or Jason Ricci? I need to know. If you have an answer, send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. So before we get to Jeff Leach, I want to play a voicemail. It's from one of my favorite Dopey storytellers, the great Michael Mick Popham, who, like Jeff Leach, is English. So this is kind of the most English episode we've done in a long time. He, and if you want to send in a voicemail, you know what to do. Record it on your phone, on the voice memo, and then send it to dopeypodcast at gmail.com. If I play it, you get socks. Here is Michael. Hello, Dave. Hello, Dopey Nation. It's Mick here. I hope everyone out there is happy and well. I was talking to uh, a good mate of mine in the Dopey Nation the other day about that British institution known as the White Van Man. <laughs> of which uh, I was one, and it reminded me of uh, of a good story. Um, I didn't make it to DopeyCon this year, which I was a bit heartbroken about, but um, needs must, and uh, it looks like it went off absolutely fucking fantastically. So um, I'll be there next year. But uh, in the absence of getting there, is a is a dopey story. Um, right, it's probably about two thousand and four. Um, I was going to a private doctor in London uh, and I was on methadone and Valium and Tamazepam, uh, one of my many outpatient attempts. Now, just to set the scene, in the 60s in the UK, there was this thing called the British system where there was a few doctors in London who could prescribe medical grade heroin, diamorphine, pharmaceutical smack to addicts um, rather than methadone and they would get their script weekly and they'd get take-homes of of heroin from the doctor. Now this sort of started to phase out in the mid to late 70s but there was a handful of doctors that continued prescribing legally. Uh, they, They retained their heroin license in, into the 90s and early 2000s. By the early 2000s, these doctors were kind of dying off and were retiring and not taking on new patients. But there was one of these offices just around the corner from where I was getting my script. And I met a guy there who was in his late 60s and he was prescribed these amps of, um, yeah, pure pure heroin. Um, and it, he'd fucked all his veins and then he'd started shooting intramuscular um, and but he just fucked all the flesh on his body as well. It was something else. He, he just, he, he couldn't inject anymore. He was in his late 60s, I think, then. Um, and he showed like his thighs, his ass cheeks, his shoulders. The geezer looked like a walking leather handbag. He was just fucked from millions of injections over the years. So he started drinking methadone rather than shooting dope and taking mad fucking benzos. His doctor was trying to cut down on the the benzos because of the amount he was taking. But obviously, being a good junkie, this bloke worked out that his diamorphine amps were worth way more than methadone on the street. So he could sell his... So rather than tell his doctor that he wanted to go on methadone, 
he would sell his dimorphine amps, then buy methadone, and then still have cash in his pocket. So I was one of the people that was buying these things off him. Um, and I went up one day, I was living s south of the sea. We jumped in the white van, me and my mate, and drove up to the sea. I don't really know why we drove that day. I can't remember. Normally you'd get a train up there because it's like trying to park in central London is sort of like trying to park in fucking central Manhattan. You know, it's not easy. But I had a mate who um, worked, it's a different mate, who worked in a stationery, a wholesaler's, just a few minutes walk from uh, where I used to meet this guy. So we drove up and I gave him a call and said, hey, can we park just off the loading bay? We won't be long. And he was like, yeah, just just, just make sure you're quick because, you know, the boss will get the ump. Um, so we parked there, went and met this old guy, got the um, heroin amps and, um, you know, swapped them for some benzos and methadone and a bit of cash and went back to the van. And the plan was to go and get some coke after this, <clears throat> but we hadn't got it yet. We got in the back of the van and, you know, both had a shot. Now, I hadn't had any of this pure stuff for a while. <laughs> and now, everything after this point, I'm telling relayed, because my mate told me, I don't really remember much of this, because I by this point, I'd eaten a load of Valium as well. So he relayed this to me, but this is the general gist anyway. I went out in the back of the van, and so did he, but... He obviously just kind of really heavily nodded, whereas I kind of not went out, out, but went out, you know. <laughs> and then <clears throat> some time passes and he's woken up to a jolt and a clunk and then sort of noise, which he wakes up and realises that the van's getting towed. We're going up on the back of a tow truck. <laughs> so, so he and, and I'm out. Like I'm, I, I don't remember this at all. So he he jumps out the van, has some interaction with the tow truck driver, which I imagine involves slipping him fucking fifty quid, and then back down we go, I guess. And he jumps in, drives off. The first thing I remember is at the Swanley service station, He, him pulling me out of the back of the van. In the meantime, I've just been bouncing around in the back of the van and the toolboxes and everything. Anyway, he's obviously gets however many fucking miles out of the city, pulls over at the Swanley service station, drags me out of the back of the van, sits me in the front in the passenger seat, gives me a fucking Red Bull or a coffee or something slaps me a couple of times and then I can sort of start to remember a bit from there and um yeah so that was the day we uh we nearly ended up on the back of a tow truck out in the back of a fucking white transit van so uh yeah there's a dopey story but I <laughs> the old sort of scene in London made me think as well it's an interesting talking point because some places in the world now I think Portugal have started doing this again where they're actually prescribing medical grade narcotics in lieu of traditional MAT which I don't know it's just it's an interesting talking point <laughs> anyways that's a dopey story I hope everyone out there in the dopey nation is happy and well 
fucking stay strong, Doby Nation, and fucking suitors for Chris. It's always good to hear from Mr. Popham. And it's always good to hear about legal heroin. So if anyone has any legal prescribed dimorphine stories or any, I mean, I live for old methadone stories from the UK, from England, from New Zealand. If you have an old methadonian story, send it in. Or a, a dimorphine story or a legal heroin story. I love it all. I love the history and I love hearing from Mr. Popham. Another one of the incredible treatment centers that supported us in DopeyCon was Diamond Recovery. And Diamond Recovery is incredibly interesting to me because they focus so heavily on co-occurring mental health disorders and just mental health in general. They make sure, if you're looking for a treatment center in the southern east of the country, if you're in Atlanta or Florida, Diamond Recovery has a top-notch inpatient program. The things that I've learned about Diamond I love. I love the level of connection that the staff has with the clients. I love that so many of the staff are actually in recovery. I love that they consider the rehab as a hotel-hospital combination, so you're going to get top-notch amenities. And most importantly, I love that their vision is about doing right by the client no matter what. So if you are struggling with addiction or a serious mental illness and you're looking for a place in Florida or in Georgia, check out Diamond Recovery. You can check them out at diamondrecovery.com or they have a a phone number you can call them at, which is 1-844-909-2525. Check them out, Diamond Recovery. And I just got another email. Like I was like looking for an email and one came in while I was looking for it, which means I have to read it. And it's from a woman named, or a man named Angel. And he says, or she says, I think it's a she. Um, Hey Dave, long time, first time. You have really been killing it lately. Nice. Your interviewing skills have really improved. Don't spiral out over improved. How does, how does she know me so well? You have really hit an amazing stride. I miss Chris, but you're doing great. Chris would be so proud and happy for how good the show is. Toodles from Angel. Thank you, Angel. I really appreciate it. And um, I think um, I think you're right. I think my interviewing skills have really improved. Although I've been getting a lot of like, we Claire is killing it on social media. Like our TikTok, she she posted an Ethan Supley video. It's got like almost two million views, and um, there's a lot of criticism that I interrupt him too much. So there's still an undercurrent that I'm I'm interrupting too much. But and and you know that shit gets me down. But thank you, Angel, and um, and I think Chris would be proud, and uh, I miss him too. You know, the show is a totally different thing without him but we're doing our best to honor him. And Jeff Leach, Chris would love Jeff Leach. And and before we even play Jeff Leach, I need to say that he uses the term heroic dose of psilocybin. And I don't think I I don't think he really says that, but just heroic dose. A mushroom heroic dose is just a concept that I haven't gotten out of my head since I had my talk with Jeff Leach. So Jeff Leach is a comic. He has a special. It is called 
Jeff Leach presents a comedy spectacular. It is available on YouTube. Follow Jeff on Instagram. But before we get to Jeff, I want to say one last sponsor. It is called Discover Recovery. It is, if you guys remember Chris Paulson last week, Chris Paulson was on the show. He has a treatment center in Washington State. It is called Discover Recovery. And Chris is a really like stand up guy. And I like that. And um, basically, he's like, it's the best rehab in Washington State. There's two locations for detox and residential treatment. The, the It's really the best treatment anywhere in the Pacific Northwest. The medical staff on site is there seven days a week, and they are striving to provide the best treatment possible in a region that has been historically underserved. Everybody there has a uh, master's levels degrees, fucking substance abuse counselors, you know, the whole deal, luxury accommodations. If you are in the Pacific Northwest and you're fucked and you want to get some help, you need to check out Discover Recovery. Their email is www.discoverrecovery.com. Chris is a great friend of the show, one of my new friends. So if you're fucked in the Pacific Northwest, you need to check out Discover Recovery. All right. Here we go. Jeff Leach, Dopey Talk. Oh, there's one other thing. If you're looking for Dopey merch, we're doing a crazy end-of-the-year sale at DopeyPodcast.com. Get everything on the website between 20 and 50% off, which includes 50% off the fucking super dope DopeyCon IV hoodie. This is very exciting. We, are, we have video, we're, and the room is pretty well lit. We're doing it. And uh, this is Jeff Lee. Top lighting, so my five head is perfectly visible. You I look like beautiful. Thank Show you. him the jingle jangle. Oh, yeah, I had to leave some off because I didn't want, you, no one wants to listen to this. It sounds like Santa Claus coming down the, uh, the chimney, but um, I've taken a few of my giant rings off today. And we're going to say hello and welcome to Dopey, the podcast on drugs, addiction, and dumb shit. And my name is Dave, and this is Jeff Leach, and your special came out today. today Jeff Leach. My spectacular. A comedy spectacular. That's right. And yeah. there's music, animation, stand-up, introspection. It is art. It is beautiful. Thank you. No, is, thank you. Is, I'm glad you've watched it. I feel like most of the people I'm going to talk to about the project won't have even really watched it all through. They probably don't, so. I, have to, I, I wanted to watch it, and I feel like, I just a little background, I used to do a TV show and I didn't do any research on any of the guests, and it was and it was horrible. <laughs> so if I don't watch it, I'll be in big trouble. I think trouble. we have similar backgrounds. You know, we both did drugs that we shouldn't have done and yes. lived lives that maybe weren't beneficial for us, but then uh, my background was in TV hosting for the BBC years ago. Well, I'm sure your career was way more major than mine. <laughs> I don't think so. And you were in video games. I'm, I'm still in a lot of them. Yeah, yeah, I got more coming out. Yeah. Tell tell Dopey Nation and me about what it is to be a voice of all these games. It's exciting. I think the, this child in me that absolutely loves playing video games. I still play video games a lot. It's my it's my escapism. What do you play? Uh, right now I'm playing Starfield, which is a Bethesda game, which is a very expansive universe. It's, it's literally getting in spaceships and exploring the cosmos and save you know doing various adventures to save people or help people in the local community out it's it's what i would like to be doing in, in my real life well in a way you are though with comedy yes but i'd love to do it off this planet 
Okay, off world. Yeah. Is Starfield is it is it a like a Xbox thing or is it just a computer game? Yeah, it's on it's on console as well, but it's I, I play on PC. I, I got very seriously into video game uh, video gaming on PC during the pandemic. Uh, I was in a video game called Call of Duty, and I played this iconic character called Ghost. And he's like a he wears a skull mask, and he's very much a your ghost. Yeah, in well, Call not, of not Duty. anymore. I'm not. There's you another were. actor playing it now. I, I was. Give us a little ghost. What he kind of talks like that, you know, my mate's at Hereford. Molotov out. Do me a favor. Grab your loadout. Get down to the drop plane because we're going hot in the AO. That it's sounds very, yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. It's basically the man I wanted to be. Uh, uh, self-assured, not insecure in the slightest. Or oh, I'm actually, he might be insecure. I mean, he wears a bloody skull mask. Some part of him is it's, hiding. Some part hates it. Ghost probably hates himself deep down. You watch the, the spectacular. So the ego death, the, the literal and, you know, metaphoric death of my ego or le- uh, severance of my ego. Yeah, maybe Ghost hasn't gone through that yet. He's hiding behind an identity, which I think we all do. The question is how deep of a bottom did Ghost hit to put the mask on? I was going to ask how deep of a bottom was Ghost? And I was like, that's a different, I didn't, I didn't even know. I didn't even think about his sexuality. Um, <laughs> he would be a bottom as well. He'd be a power bottom. Power. Is there any other kind of bottom? No. And I've just stayed with two um, of my friends who are a gay couple. Um, one of them is a very talented comedian called Meran Kagani. And uh, and he said that. I said, I think I'd probably be a, a bottom if I was going to be a gay gentleman, like a power bottom. He went, oh, they're all power bottoms, darling. They're all power bottoms. It's like, what is the, it's like, I'm a bottom, but not a powerful bottom. No. Like, what would the opposite of power don't bottom? A light, a light bottom. Please don't. But nobody identifies as a light bottom. A pleasant bottom. Nobody says that. A rosy bottom. Does anyone say that? Never. It's just a power bottom or a top. There's no, yeah, exactly. Or you top from the bottom. Exactly. Or a bottom from the top. Or verse. Well, you just mix it up. I'm with you. Now, I'm happy, like, because I, 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 nobody gets pitched to come on Dopey. And for a second, we had a talent booker, but mm-hmm. that all fell to shit. And you were the one person that made it through, and it was through a confluence of crazy cosmic synchronicities. I know, I know. And so, I'm very grateful, because I, I can already tell that we're going to talk about a lot of interesting things today. And this- I hope so. Will be quite unique for me as an experience, I think, as a comic- Often I get I go on podcasts or have appearances on shows and you know it's all about trying to one up and 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 keep pushing. Oh yeah, where's the funny line? Where's the funny line? Whereas I'd much rather talk about life and have a personal connection with a person I'm discussing that life with. Well, I don't think people are capable of doing that, but addicts, especially th- in recovery, often are. I think that like because you you straddle the line of of comedy, art, and recovery. Mm-hmm. Like comics tend to need to one up or whatever. Yeah, because they're insecure deeply. So how often are you are you stumbling upon like really sober comics? Um, I know Jim Norton's right. He's very sober. In fact, there's I feel like most of the comics down at the Comedy Cellar they're either they're either still very much within their addictions or they are sober. There's 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 very very little middle grounds. Mayron is a perfect example. You know, he's he's sober, and um, I love that. I think there's a, an honesty that sober people have to live, not even just want to, they have to. It's part of the part of the process of accepting your flaws, insecurities, uh, the you know, the rock bottom. Once you once you've hit it and you come out of it, you go, "All right, god, I can't go back there." So I have to change some some approach of how I live my life. And for me, when I gave up booze, which you know, I've, I've only just recently given up marijuana as well. 
But when I gave up alcohol four and a half years ago, I just said, right, I can't live like that anymore. I can't lie to myself. It's not even about other people, but I did do a lot of lying to other people as well. But um, if I'm going to live and, and be happy living, I have to be more honest in well, all things and transparent. Especially when you're like actually pursuing recovery. Mm. I mean, I, I, I love, uh, it's funny because when I talk to the, the lady, this woman, I, any hardcore dopey nation people know Peter Loshak was on our show a few times and he's my friend. And he always- and you were in a ska punk band together. In a million years ago. But his sister is a publicist and his sister works very closely with Jeff. And she was like, oh, I know he's sober from alcohol. So I was ready for some weird stoner, ketamine, yeah, fucking yeah. hallucinogen business. Describe, we'll get to when you quit drinking. Yeah. But when you quit drinking and you kept smoking, what does the smoking look like? Is it stoner dumb? Is it med medicinal marijuana? Like, where does it hit? I think I excused it as medicinal for a while. Were you here? Oh, no, I live in L.A. I'd be, Where I was, you live in LA? I was here for four and a half years when I first got to America, which was nine years ago. And then I've been in LA for five years. Where do you live in Los Angeles? In the valley now. I live, I moved a bit further out, a bit more residential. Like Sherman Oaks dog. or something? Yeah, not far. Yeah, nice. yeah, North Hollywood. I lived in North Hollywood. I was a total wreck in North Hollywood. It's an easy place to be a it total wreck. North Hollywood Park is still filled with a vast amount of people who are struggling, I think, with addictions and mental health. I know. lived right near Toluca Lake. So it's very it's very nice that we got you. I thought you were a New Yorker. No, I'm just out here doing some shows at the cellar and, you know, doing a bit of promo. In the in the movie, in the special, I should say. Spectacular. In the spectacular, you're in the cellar and I got the feeling that you were a New Yorker. But you lived here I am a, a New Yorker. Though. I feel like a New Yorker. I'm a Londoner. I'm a New Yorker. And I'm definitely not a Los Angelian in terms of my comedy. My comedy is very, I think, still has that slightly acerbic wit in some places. And also, you know, I, I love a good knob gag, you know. And I, I, But I also, there's a raw kind of um, fearlessness that I think London and New York comics have. But then I definitely have a little bit of that um, performative act out theatricality that a lot of Los Angeles, uh, Los Angelian um, comics have. I think it's Los Angelino. Is it Los Angelino? Because of the, the... Oh, yeah, of course. The Angelinos. Yeah, you're right. I think so. Well, thank you for correcting me. Well, now me. you'll know when you go home. Yeah. And uh, that was the first dopey thing I've said already. We've already... No, no, no. Getting my... So I want to I talk about fucking stonerdom in recovery, the right. beginning of it. How does it work? Do you, when do you feel like, or were you going to meet? I'll tell you what, I felt like a, a cheater. That's my question. Felt like a liar. Um, in fact, uh, I won't say who, because I don't know if they are public about their own uh, sobriety, but there's um, a very talented actor that I'm friends with. I met her in an airport and I was a fan of her work. I said, you know, I just think you're incredibly talented. What are you up to? And we both happened to be heading to uh, Comic-Con to do some work. Was and it we, Catherine Zeta-Jones? It was not. Okay. It was not. But that would have made it even cooler, the story. And we had a lovely chat and we got on very well. We formed this friendship and we found out that we were both in recovery and we went to an AA meeting in LA together. And uh, and the drive back from the meeting, we were talking about marijuana and she was saying, you're, but you're not sober. And I was like, yeah, no, I am. I'm just I'm California sober, you know? Did you say like, that? Yeah, yeah. Well, nice. that's, that's what you're told in like, that's the phrase. You're smoking weed. It's all right. That's medicinal. It just heals. It just helps you, you know, ease out. And at that time, I really believed that. And now I know, no, I wasn't sober. I was just, I just replaced one crutch with another. It's just that it had less of a negative effect on me until it didn't, you know? 
Well, I, it's like I was so, I think, jealous of people who said they were sober and they smoked weed. I, for years, I was so jealous. And then at some point, I like decided I wasn't jealous anymore. Yeah. And it was like, okay. I also have a crazy, I've always had this crazy reservation about being a pothead again, you know, as an old man. Right. Like smoking weed, like on my porch as yeah. an old man with a bong and an Almond Brothers record. Oh, I mean, you have to, if you, when you're an old man, you have to get one of those long pipes like Gandalf. Cup. Yeah. That would be really sweet. That's the only way I would smoke weed is to have a giant long pipe. The other day. Like a wizard. Oh, that, oh, yeah. The Gandalf is the ultimate stoner. He is. You can do Gandalf really good. Huh? I can say in McKellen, yes. What is it? Frodo Baggins, a wizard is never late. He arrives precisely when he intends to. That's very good. Thank you. Yeah. I, but I decided I at some point, like, I'm fucking, like, I give up. Like, how am I going to decide that somebody is or isn't sober? Especially if somebody is, like, how many people go to AA and are on, like, prescribed Adderall or prescribed benzos? And they need the it. Various and they, they need, need it. They need it. To get off heroin, right. to get off crack. But even know, like, not even that. Just, mm. like, maintenance drugs for people with mental illness. And, like, people never studied weed as it deals with mental illness. And, and how many people think they don't have an addiction in this country and yet are on 12 different forms right. of medication that big farmers pushing down their necks, you know? But you were like, I don't, I'm a cheater. I'm not sober. I think I just, I, I think I realized a few months ago, I just went, this is, if I think if something has a negative impact on your life, if it starts, if it's no longer something that you can do occasionally to enhance an experience and it starts to be something you're reliant on to escape reality, escapism, that's why for me it was. And, and I realized, oh no, I'm using weed to escape because I don't want to face certain realities. What was the end of your, the weed? When was, when was the beginning of your total abstinence? God, a month ago? A month and ago is why? when I just gave up weed. Because, um, oh, actually, I'll tell you why. I know the exact moment. I took mushrooms. So psilocybin, I do consider medicinal. Um, medicinal. And I don't use it socially. It's not something I don't take mushrooms and go out dancing. Or I don't sit around with friends and go, yeah, let's all do mushrooms today. I take a large dose, a hero dose, three, four times a year and I How uh, much is in a hero dose? Like five to seven grams. Nice. Mm. That is a heroic dose. Mm. And then I commune with a higher power. The first time I did it, I didn't commune with a higher power. The first time I was quite petrified. I just my my best friend had just killed himself. This was November last year. So he committed suicide after a long battle with mental health issues. And that hit me really hard. It broke my heart. I'm very, very sorry. Thank you. I've lost a a bunch of guarantee yeah i knew i already like you know and that's that's the thing that bonds us when we sit in an aa meeting there's a reason why people go to ANNA and then go back because you sit around people and go all right we get it at least we're all bonded by the fact that we're all fucked up and we're all hurting and we're all a little bit broken but trying to not be then that's and i and there's something very reassuring to go i'm not alone it's a, it's a very lonely place addiction and um recovery can be a very not lonely place and I, that's that's why i love it when you engage in it right so mm-hmm. ha, who told you what the hero's dose was oh like, no tell, one really my i just uh you're sober you're off of alcohol for for f- almost you know four years at that point four, three and a half years three yeah. and a half years best friend kills himself your best friend kills himself as i'm trying desperately to process that three weeks later my dad loses his bout with alcoholism and he how his, did he die his stomach burst and he was alone at home and he had uh, the onset of dementia from his and this was late stage alcoholism although i found out since that 
my mum and my sister said that you know he was drinking quite heavily for most of his life we just you just didn't really know and we kind of never highlighted it for you because we knew you were dealing with your own stuff I think they did it to try and protect me, but um, I'm going to derail the whole conversation because I have to because yeah, I, yeah, I didn't course. organize this chat. The and way. also, we're two addicts. I mean, I find it very difficult to get through one point from my own mind. Anyway, how much did your dad's alcoholism impact you deciding to stop drinking? Uh, massively. Yeah, and yeah. When, when I saw when I saw him, it. let's go back to the beginning. Yeah, I want to know when did you start drinking in the first place? Oh, I started heavily. I started drinking. I remember I was 11 years old, and it was one of my birthday parties i asked my parents if i could i drank before that my mum's romanian macedonian my dad is east london cockney a little drink you know a little ooh, little half a little thing of beer you know occasionally down at the rugby club with dad was like oh go on then there you go from like 13 you know or whatever or like before that little glass of wine at christmas or a little tiny bit of champagne or whatever so there was always a bit like the europeans do you know like the french they have their kids drink a little wine with water when they're very young um so you're like 11 yeah and then at 11 i remember having a birthday party and i asked for some alcohol i said can i get some alcohol and they were like no you can't and i said well, come on me and my friends can we just get so they got me uh, a bunch of cans of hooch it was called hooch and it was yeah. like this really sickly sweet carbonated dog shit just awful and i remember drinking a bunch of those and being violently ill my sister having to come into the toilet and kind of helped me throw up and then try and hide from my parents that I had How consumed. I was fucked up. And um, that was my first taste of the pain of alcohol. And then I had a, two older friends who lived in my little cul-de-sac of my street in my local area, Matt and Rob. And they were four and six years older than me. So when I was 11, I was hanging out with a 15-year-old and a 17-year-old. Fast so crowd. Started smoking weed. Suburbs kind of living. You know the, the burbs kind of vibe what was of the, What was the town? Uh, Subbury Hill. Subbury Hill. Subbury Hill, which is like zone four of London. So you're still London, but you're just a bit outside. You know, you got more like your local pubs and your local bars and the town center's got a chicken shop and things like that. Can I know? ask you a dumb question? Of course, do that's the name of the podcast. Do you know, this is <laughs> do you know the band so, The Specials? What's that? Sorry, the band The Specials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know where he says in... in You've done too much, much too young. Dawning of a new era. I knew a girl from Area 3. She told me that she worked in a chicken factory. What is Area 3? It was like Zone 3, wasn't it? That, but that's what they're talking about? I assume. I don't know. Doesn't matter. Forget it. I pretend and you like can speak Cockney good? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit of apples and pears and what's your, you know, uh, mum's a word and a uh, nice little Tina Turner and, you know, yeah. What's mum's word? Tank. Well, mum's word is like, you know, keep stum, keep quiet. Right, I know Nice that. little Tina Turner is a nice little learner. Uh, Iron Tank is a bank. Apples and, and pears, pears down stairs. The stairs. Dog and bone, phone, you know. Love it. We got a little bit, but I'm 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 a I'm a fake I'm a Mockney really. My dad I'm I'm Cockney blooded. My dad was born under the sound. Of, a Cockney is someone who is born under the sound of the Bow Bells, and the Bow Bow Church is what that refers to. So if you could hear the sound of the Bow Church you're bells, you're a Cockney. So my dad was born in West Ham under the sound of the Bow Bells. Very very Cockney. His parents tried to work themselves out of that place. They moved to Northwest London. My dad, um, he was the first to go to university and to go and, you know, do a college, you know, like engineering college. That was a big deal. And then my mum came from this very poverty-stricken existence under Ceausescu's reign. She was living under a communist dictatorship in Bucharest. And uh, so both of them were very hard. They still are. My mum still is. Hard people who survived. And, uh, and you know. Did she drink? No. 
My mum's never been a drinker, never really done any. She done, never touched any drugs. She smoked a few cigarettes. That was like the drug they used to do. In that how did she deal? How did she deal with your dad's drinking? I don't think she ever understood why he drank. Um, I do now, very deeply. I mean, he had a huge amount of childhood trauma. You know, a lot of violence in his home, uh, both towards him and his mother. And so, uh, I think he's just a little boy growing up watching his mum get beaten, and he got the shit kicked out of him as well. And he medicated and it. He medicated it. Also, it's like it's got, cultural there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What were you going to say? He never got what? Never got validation. He never. He, he. That's what killed him. I think it wasn't just the booze. It was the fact that even on my grandfather's deathbed, my dad never got the validation that you know you hurt me, you fucked me up, and his father just could not accept that. But also, his father was in an was absolutely. I have no shadow of a doubt that he was beaten by right. his father and he went through a world war and he fought in in the, in the RAF he actually was highly uh, commended because he flew one of the bombers the uh Catalina uh whatever the famous bomb British bombers were and he they 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 had the record number of um uh Nazi submarines that they blew up they were they were like but he saw a lot of his mates get ripped to shreds I'm certain of it and came back from that war fucked up and then passed it on to your dad Passed on to my dad. And how is your dad with you? Dead. Oh, sorry. <laughs> he's not doing too great. Yeah, I don't mean now. I mean like uh, if he was beaten, did did he beat you? He desperately tried not to. My dad, what I realized was a very sensitive boy. He was a very artistic and um, bright boy who could have done even more incredible things. He, I, I have so much respect for my father. He, he, he did two things. One. His career, he worked his ass off. He was so dedicated. He uh, a highly functioning alcoholic, which I too was for most of my life. He um, in the Royal Albert Hall, the acoustics used to be horrendous in the Royal Albert Hall, and he uh, he was one of the guys that designed the they're called the mushrooms, which are the sound uh, sort of spheres Amazing. inside that have made the beautiful sound in the Albert Hall as we hear it now. He did that. He was project manager on the Jubilee line, the best tube line that is, exists in London. He, he headed up a large portions of that and designed the Jubilee line. He was a really bright, brilliant guy, um, but he was sensitive. He was a soft boy who just wanted to be loved and given some some emotional comfort, and he didn't get it. And his mum didn't even give it to him because he, she loved him fiercely. I think they, they both did in their own ways, but she, even her experience at the hands of her husband she kind of just denied that it had any impact on them. You know, just, oh, it wasn't, your father wasn't that bad. Oh, you know, it's, it's very British, very stiff Sweet upper limb, very like working right, class. Right, like, right. look, it is what it is. Yeah, all right, your husband hits you. It's the 1940s. That's what happens. That's what you do. You know, I was, was I, I answered back. Of course I got a slap. You know right. what I mean? And your dad Deeply probably thought. traumatic mentality to right. have, but. And I'm sure your dad felt the same way. Mm-hmm. And then with, with you as a kid. He tried desperately not to repeat that cycle. I'm not going to say my dad wasn't ever physical with me. He was occasionally, but I d- I cannot claim I I would never you totally you totally deserved it. I, I I was a little dickhead. I would have smacked me too. I never got um I never got beaten by my father on a regular basis. It wasn't anything like that. There was no regular beatings. So I don't I wasn't but I was deeply fearful of my father. He intimidated me. He was terrifying. And um because he didn't want to repeat what his dad did to him. He was like, "Right, I won't beat the shit out of Jeff." But I will, it was emotional uh, torment. You know, it was like, 
if you don't do this, if you don't achieve these grades, then I'm going to take you out of the school. I'm going to take you out of this. You won't be able to do acting. You won't be in the school play. You won't be allowed to play football. You won't be able to do, you know, or uh, I'll tell all your friends, you know, blah, blah, blah. You won't be allowed to go to this. You won't have a bird. I'll cancel this. It was always like threats of... Something you not not being able to do what you wanted. or Yeah, be. basically anything that brings you joy, I will remove from your life unless you are a straight A student with 100% in every single examination. And it's because he desperately just wanted me to have success more than he had. And he just wanted to continue giving opportunity. My dad loved me deeply, deeply. I'd never doubted it. But he... Um, it's weird when you lose a parent. Yeah. You know, because like I, my mom died when I was in my mid-30s and putting it all together is is tricky how, do you mind me asking how she passed? She, she died from leukemia i'm sorry to hear that. thank you horrendous yeah she died quickly though but like i see you talking about your dad and it's touching because you want to make sure that he's, he's not misrepresented right it's hard though it's hard when someone's he's human gone. he's human 100%. he was deeply fucked up he was deeply traumatized and he did his best to not repeat that cycle Unfortunately, he did, but in a completely different way than his father did to him. It was emotional torment for me as opposed to with, with him. It was physical every single day and probably a vast amount of emotional as well. My mom mm. was uh, tough and judgmental, but I felt what you just said described my childhood too, which I know she loved me deeply. Yeah. But it's weird. You know what I mean? Especially like when you're in recovery and you're trying to figure out what you the fuck normalize, happened. You also normalize shit. I don't think either of my parents were natural, sh naturally drawn to being parents. I don't know if they necessarily should have had children. They certainly shouldn't have been married. They certainly shouldn't have been together. I'm grateful they were. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here having this conversation with you now. But um, yeah, they should have divorced. They should never have married. They should have divorced years before. They should have known each other more before they connected in that way. And um, they live very miserable lives for a lot of it. Now, my mom has done a huge amount of work in her twilight years you know she's 75 she just came and visited for a couple of weeks That's again nice. i love my mom implicitly with all my heart she's an incredible human being teacher english literature and theater, uh, yeah, theater both my teacher. parents were teachers my dad still teaches now you were a stoner in high school mm. yeah so um the older boys matt and rob got me into weed really young 11 i remember whiting on my first time smoking weed they were like right how, how do i do it and i remember being in the alleyway near my home there's this little alleyway walkway we used to go down and they go, right, go on, you smoke your first joint. I was like, can I try it? And they're like, yeah, 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 okay. They go, what you need to do is, and this is, I never smoked a cigarette. I hadn't even had a cigarette in my life yet. And they were like, yeah, you got to put it in. And you go, and then you open your mouth again. You take the weed out and you open your mouth again. And then you breathe in again. You go, like that. So I'm there, 11, trying to show off with a big boy. And I coughed profusely. I was violently sick. I was vomiting. And then I felt like, oh my God, what is this? I'm like. Uh, this is the best and the worst all at once. And after that, that was it. I was a, I was a stoner. Serious stoner. And I smoked a lot of weed all the way through until uh, college when I went to university at Warwick and I was doing English there and English literature and theater studies. I was still smoking huge amounts of weed. In fact, I was selling it at university to other students. It was like an easy way to make extra money. And then I stopped. I can't remember what happened. I, I Maybe I started taking class A's and I just decided I shouldn't be a stoner anymore. This is not, this is boring bores me so i just gave up weed completely didn't smoke it at all until maybe uh i don't know seven eight years oh, i smoked you know, occasionally at a party every now and then but i was not a stoner for almost a decade and a half and then when i gave up the booze and gave up the k and gave up the coke and gave up the pills and you know uh, mdma and all that business 
I was like, all right, I need something. That's so funny. And you were like, oh, I remember I liked weed. And that, that was pretty innocuous. And I moved to California. Yeah. And great you, pod. It's a, and it's great. It's great weed. And also it's so, it's just like alcohol is in England. It's so socially acceptable that you go, this is not really a drug. This is just like having a little, you know, a little glass of wine at dinner with your friends or whatever. How was it when the first time you started smoking weed after you gave up booze, was it good? Was it like, did you get yeah. paranoid? Did you feel like you were a kid again? It it was interesting because it was a different experience. When I was when I was a kid, the weed was shit. And you used to have to go with your 20 quid note to a dodgy little estate and bang on a door. And a guy, I remember the guy that we used to buy from had one of those slides. And when we he'd let me into the apartment, he'd have like sort of seven or eight big locks on it. Um, he was a big yardie, you know, Jamaican yardie. And he'd be like, yeah. and I was like a little kid just terrified. I'm like, I don't know if he's going to just take my money and not give me weed or if I'm going to get fucking robbed here or whatever. Because I was petrified and also... Probably, I was also the product of a bit of systemic racism as sure. well. I probably was quite terrified of this gigantic black gentleman who was selling me drugs. And he was always very charming. You know, he was, he was a very lovely guy. And uh, But yeah, he used to get this little baggie of shit weed and it had loads of, it had loads of uh, seeds in it and seeds. stems. Yeah. Although, you know, I tried to grow some of those seeds. I got a little plant off once that was from That's the, the seeds. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was a process. But it was a, buying drugs in London at that time was an adventure. It was like, oh, this is dangerous. Well, being and a kid fun and buying and drugs that probably at any time is a great adventure. 100%. And then the outcome of the adventure is total magic transformation. Mm -hmm. You take this substance and you're changed. Yeah. What was the first class A? First class A, I, I remember it very clearly. I didn't do any class A's actually. I used to be incredibly anti class A's all the way up until I was 19 years old. I would literally, my friends would take Coke or they would do pills and I'd be like, you know, a, a Molly, you know. And I'd be like, oh, now you're fucking idiots, man. I just, all I ever do is drink and smoke weed. That's it. You're idiots. You're going to die from that stuff. You're going to die from that stuff. I had that mentality. Then I went to New Zealand. I spent a year there in my kind of gap year between um, high school and university. And I was teaching kids sports. And, and I fell what in love with this. Well, I was, teach I was coaching soccer there, but I played everything. Cricket, rugby, soccer. Yeah, and, and as a phys ed teacher i was i was even teaching the haka to gigantic polynesian kids it was fucking beautiful Amazing. it was one of the most culturally fulfilling experiences of my life my sister lives in new zealand now and i'm very excited to go back there again this year to to visit but i was there i fell madly in love with this dance dj on a um a radio station out there called george fm she was my first my first love you know my really legit first love true first love four or five years older than me dj on this dance station i got a job in the dance station part-time reading the news and and uh i just nice. fell madly in love with her and she was part of the club scene dance music scene so i'd always been a rock kid up until that point hip-hop and rock went there started to listen to dance music went to the clubs and i remember she gave me my first ecstasy tablet and um that was the night that she broke my heart i i i tripped really hard i was gurning my face off i was talking dog shit which you know first time you take molly you're gonna say some weird shit oh, and, it's the best oh god and everyone else <laughs> there's like five to ten years older than me sitting around her house after the party you know in as the sun's coming up and i'm like oh yeah i'm just like you know my eyes are wide like saucers i'm being weird shit and i went i'm gonna go and lay down in her room and i remember she came in and she went hey uh you're being really fucking weird and I think you should leave. And I was heartbreaking. Like, and I was high as well. And I was like, what? what? What do you mean? What do you mean? She was just like, you should just go. 
and upon reflection, I don't know. We, me and her met a number of times over the course of our lives, our lives since, and she she apologized for that moment. She said I was in a bad place. I was doing a lot of drugs, and I just didn't want you around because you were you were ruining the vibe. So I I walked, and I this was before Ubers and Lyfts, and there's no cabs in. Were Auckland you guys like a time. couple? We were a couple. We we're boyfriend that's, and girlfriend. And that's yeah. horrible. Mm -hmm. So you're rolling. I walked home, and it start the heavens opened as I left her house. So I walked home three and a half hours in the rain at like four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning. Sad. Crying. that You couldn't see the tears because the rain was so strong. That's like the worst ecstasy trip in the oh, history of ecstasy I was on trips. my knees going, you know when you cry so hard that the snot from your nose and the spit from your mouth kind of joins together like a bungee cord of misery. That was... I was like, please, no. why are you doing this to me? She was like, just, you're being fucking weird. Go home. I'm like, and I'm, yeah. But you were like, I can't wait to do it again. And then I, yeah, and then I did it more. I got back to London after that. I was like, all right, I'm going to Was that the end going. of you and her? Yeah, at that point, yes. We kept in contact online quite a bit. And then it was clear that we weren't going to be anything beyond. And then we reconnected years later and were very intimate again. And then we had another reconnection where there was a possibility we might even end up together. Then we connected again at a music festival years later when I was DJing. I died at that. Technically, my heart stopped at that music festival from drugs. I was DJing at Glastonbury the year that Kanye West was on, uh, was doing the main stage. And uh, I took a really big cocktail of MDMA crystal that I was sucking on all the way throughout the day. We had this giant rock of MDMA. I was taking a lot of ketamine, coke, everything, whippets, just everything, booze, excessive. I kind of wanted to push the boundaries. Who was the, how much can I do and still do things? And I was DJing, I DJed that night, and I remember DJing, I used to wear this Mexican wrestling mask. We were called DJ Men in Masks, me and my DJ partner. And I was so high, I was gurning so hard, grinding my teeth, I cracked one of my teeth and chipped the side of it off. And I remember taking the mask off of my buddy, another lunatic, this Nigerian gentleman called Tayo Ogidan, absolutely, he's got a great story. Um, he was on stage and I was like, Tayo, Tayo, my teeth, they're rotting. Because you know sometimes when you're that high, you think yeah, your teeth yeah. are falling out. Yeah, of course. And there's 3,000 people in this tent. When I started DJing, there was no one in the tent. It was empty. Had what are you playing? for a few hours. Dance music, like- Techno. Uh, yeah, like, no, no, more like um, uh, Dirty Electro, uh, Jacking Beats, um, Dubstep, a uh, little bit of drum and bass. So I'm playing all this fucking ravey music. We filled the tent. I had like 3,000 people packed into this little tent and spilling out beyond. And I remember putting the mask off and looking at my teeth, they're all rotting out. And he was like, no, 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 Lidgy, you're having a great time, it's fine. <laughs> so I finished my set and then came out and I was running around in this manic panic about my teeth. And later that night, a cold chill came completely over my body as we left the last late night tent where all the artists used to hang out at like five in the morning. And I, I felt wrong. Something told me you're gonna die. And I felt my heart and my chest, I was took my pulse and it was going do, 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 do. Do, 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 do. It was very erratic. So I walked to the medical tent with my two friends. I walked in there, and then the next thing I knew, I woke up and I was like, had an IV in my arm. They had liquids going through me to clear clear me out a bit, and they were panicking. I said, "What happened? What happened?" They were like, "Your heart stopped. It's okay. Relax. Don't panic. Um, we're going to try and arrange a, an ambulance to get you to hospital." It happened that that night they had three deaths at the festival and a bunch of people had taken... There was something. Something. You had taken too many things to know what it was that did it, though. So, oh, no, I mean, it was just everything. I was doing everything. 
I was just pushing myself. I think I, I, mean, I was trying to be as extreme as possible because I felt like that was the identity that made me interesting. I want to hear the transition from being the rainy, bungee cord of misery, snotty, first MDMA to Mr. Glastonbury DJ. Yeah. Like, what was that transition? Like, how did you, were you like, well, that girl, crazy- she, so she was a DJ. She taught me how to She's a mix girl. vinyl. Yeah. She told me, well, she was a DJ, a very, a very proficient DJ. She ended up doing some stuff with Red Bull Music Academy and very, very talented lady. And she got me into dance music. So I learned, I bought techniques when I got back. I saved up and bought my equipment. I learned how to mix and I started DJing as a profession for many years. Did and are few... you starting to just eat, eat drugs? Yeah. At and that then point. when you're DJing and you have residencies in like Paris, Barcelona, and London, you arrive there and they literally give you a bag of Coke. You know, it's like, there's your drugs. Would you want anything else? You need anything else? Oh, maybe get, come get some pills as well. Yeah, sure, get you a bunch of XT pills. And then there's your bottle of JD. That was my poison. You know, here's your big bottle of JD that's like one of those two liter boxes. How long does it take to go from not doing it to having a residency? How quickly were you successful at it? Pretty quickly. That's I mean, amazing. everything I've uh, done, I went full head first into it, but then I get bored very easily with whatever it is. And I, you I get always to a call level, myself a but renaissance not to the man. Level not to like i i find for me i like i played harmonica in a band but i never got great i got good but then i like i started to try to do something else and yeah. i never got great but how like i used to i mean i did a, a, a i was a producer as well and i did a remix for ministry of sound and island records and it was like right you could be legit you could actually do stuff now and i realized i don't have the tenacity to learn how to use pro tools to a level where i'm actually going to do this properly so what am i doing i'm i'm i'm, I'm an actor pretending to be a dj that's why i realized in all these things even in stand-up i still feel a slightly impostery well not impostery because i'm fucking good at it and i work really hard i've done it now for 12 years professionally um and yeah i i am a comic um but i when i started i wasn't i was an actor playing a comic and uh very rapidly i realized oh no this this form of storytelling is something that's very personal to me and but yeah yeah, I just realized I was going to die. I also gave up DJing, I think, because... I met, lifestyle. I met someone at a festival who offered me a... thought I was hilarious backstage. Uh, we were fucked up, and she was a TV producer, and she said, you should be a TV host. And I was like, great, give me a screen test. And she was, she was true to her word. A week later, she called me in, and that's how I got my first BBC show. And I knew if I, I can't mix these worlds like I am, like I will die if I keep DJing. I remember this story about a DJ guy I knew called Dave Beer. He's like notorious in the UK scene. I'd have no idea if he's alive or not anymore. I hope he is. At a music festival we did called Snowbombing in, in Meerhof in Austria one year, he went into a coma and they had him in the hospital there and he was in a coma for 48 hours. And when he came through, came out of that, the first thing he did is he pulled out his IVs and walked across the road and went and got a beer and called one of the other DJs to come and bring him a line of coke. And I emulated that. You know, at that festival, they didn't send me to hospital because they didn't have any ambulances because they were all out with people who were dying or dropping dead. So I ended up, they said, go get a taxi from the front. We'll walk you to the front and then you can get a taxi and go to the hospital now with your friends. And we went, yeah, 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 yeah. I left, went back to the artist area, slept for 16 hours, woke up, line of ketamine, went back to high. When does ketamine, when does ketamine start? Ketamine started, I don't know, it became popular in London on the club scene. Um, at a certain point, I must have been in my mid-20s, early mid, early to mid-20s, and very rapidly, because it was it was the only drug that wasn't a class A, it was like a class B or C, so if you got caught with it, you weren't going to get arrested, they were just going to go, 
you know, boom, we'll give you a little ticket, you know, you get like a warning, a slap on the wrist or, and uh, so we're like, great, this gets me super fucked up. It's, you just need a tiny key ends at the beginning of it, although the tolerance builds so rapidly. You go from a minuscule, tiny little bumps that fucks you up for a while to waking up at eight in the morning and having a fat line just to kind of feel normal. And then we started buying liquid ketamine from India and it's shipping it in and then cooking it ourselves. Hold on, before we get to there, how like how deep was your ketamine addiction? Like, it was deep. Like we were doing it every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I only More, did... I was waking up in the morning and doing ketamine. When like tell us about it. Like when did it start? Yeah, it was the DJing, really. Like that that whole club life. I was in East living in East London, near Shoreditch and Old Street. I lived on Hoxton Street Market, this this um very famous, you know, now place. And um I was running a club at uh, club night producing a place called uh, 333 and uh, I used to make big wads of cash on the door and then I'd walk around with like 4,000 quid in my pocket at the end of a club night leave at like 7 in the morning and then we carry on we go right where are we going liquor store there's a few hundred bucks let's get a few bowls go back to someone's house boom call the dealer up I had a <laughs> I told this story the other night to another comic we were talking about coke and our history of coke my coke dealer picked me up once. This is after about two years of really knowing this guy. And he, the way he'd do it is he'd pick me up in the car. We'd drive around maybe for five, ten minutes. We'd talk. We'd chat. And then he'd pass me, you know, whatever, however many grams of coke I was picking up that night. I'd pass him the money. And then he'd drop me off somewhere. He was very good about his business, very professional. I remember the one of the last times we hung out, he, he gave me coke. And he went, hey. He held my hand for a second. He went, hey, dude. He goes, I like you, man. You're a good dude. He goes, you need to stop doing so much coke. <laughs> and I was like, oh, my dealer. You got to love the story of the dealer looking out. <laughs> he like, it makes me a little teary to think about it. No, I, I realize now in reflection, he was trying to save my life. He was, like, he was, he was like, a true friend. And also he was trying to protect his business interests probably as well. Like you, you're, you're not going to buy any coke if you're dead. You got to keep shearing the sheep. You can't kill the sheep. You yeah. got to be able to get wool. So like fucking ketamine and coke. And I want to hear about that culture like when do you realize like if your drug dealer if the coke dealer knows yeah. it's a problem did you think it was um i didn't think i knew i knew i knew i was killing myself a bit but i think i there was a part of me that kind of you know what it is and i don't know if this is true of all addicts i idolized or i glorified the underdog it was always a reason even though I've been very highly functioning and in all of my industries throughout my life, or I've done all these different things, lived all these different lives, to almost major mainstream success, you know, almost there. Like, oh, he's on TV and he's on BBC and Channel 4 and blah, blah, blah. But then I, I was doing coke and turning up to the fucking shoots in the morning to do a children's TV show, you know, a teenager show. Um, like, haven't slept and I literally done my last gram of coke two hours prior you know so i'm coughing up fucking coke trips how, and then how in between successful takes. how successful were you at that point uh, if 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 you asked anyone in england do you know jeff leach the tv presenter no one would know me unless they were a fan of any of the shows i did in particular but at the time i was hot shit the new property everyone wanted to work with me and i kind of fucked it up i was always you know because i was doing unprofessional things i was but I was, they kept employing me because I also was good you were at good the at what job. You did. Yeah. So it, yeah, it was, it was this weird thing. So I would say that I don't think any of your listeners will know who the fuck I am and nor should they. They will now. 
and your stories are really good and i don't Thank care you. that's i mean like i'm just happy because it's sad a lot of the stories are sad but but they also have shaped a very happy life now our show like our show the purpose of our show really is so people like you and i can listen and be like oh yeah i was like that or holy shit and normalize the fact that we can have normal lives now. Yes, yes. And and, and have Which seems been. impossible when you're in it. Right. Impossible. I know when I when I was probably much less successful than you were. As soon as I had a career, I started doing heroin, and I love. See, I've never done heroin. Well, that, I, that was the one drug I never touched because I thought if I do heroin, I'm never coming back from it. I'm I will be dead within I six months. I love the absurdity. I remember I would work. Did uh, you smoke it? Did you shoot up? What I did. did you... I, I snorted it. I didn't smoke it very often, and I wound up shooting it. But um, can I ask you what that's like? The feeling of getting high, or, or which which part? The the first time I you know like anything. The first time is it's really it's it's a profound uh, wash where you're gone. Can you, you know? can you? Um, relate it to any other drug ex drugs that I might have done, or that I want to. I mean, like there, there. It's I've told the story on Dopey a million times, where I think they replaced my heroin with ketamine for a little while, so I was shooting it, and like, and I only knew that you were shooting up ketamine as well. I didn't know it was ketamine. Right, I think right, it was right, right. the dope was like very full of K for right, whatever right, reason, right. and yeah, it's uh, cheaper, and you know, right. like, like I would, I would shoot it and i would sleepwalk i would fall out and i'd wake up someplace totally different and i think when i went to treatment there was only ketamine in my system right, right and right. i thought I, it you was thought dope it was at, all, the point, yeah, at the point at the time so i i would imagine i don't i only did ketamine willingly once but, but you probably did it ongoing yeah, quite a lot without yeah. even realizing but i think if there's i would if i was to relate it to somebody who never did it somewhere between benzos ketamine and um you never did any kind of opiates. No. Yeah, it's like it feels. It maybe you've ever done quaaludes. I have not. No. Yeah, I think it's somewhere in this weird downer space, but then it gives you this 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 euphoric You're feeling. You're just gone. At the Your time. mind is. Well, and then it also does this other weird thing where it gives you energy from a deep, dark, weird place in you, but it's not like heroin addicts walk uh, very fast. It's weird. So do crackheads. A lot of fast walking. Did They're you getting smoke? their steps in. Did you smoke? Yes. I, I I was a kind of heroin I smoked addict. crack once, and I didn't realize I was smoking crack at first. And then someone went, "Oh yeah, that's crack." And I was like, "Oh, or oh, it's laced with crack." It was a it was like a, a joint laced with had had like a strip down the side of it. It was kind of this brownie liquid and stuff. And I was like, "What is that? What's this shit? Is this like hash oil or something?" He's like, "No, nah, it's crack." <laughs> and I was like, "Oh, okay." And I, I was in a squat party, and I did you know I was yeah, and I felt horrendous afterwards but smoking coke was never your thing again i used to like lick cigarettes and roll it in coke and then do a bit of that yeah what do they call it uh what's that a, a coke cigarette in england oh i don't know a good time I, I... in new york <laughs> I, when i was a kid they called it a wooly oh really that was the expression yeah no i didn't we didn't really have a name for it we just like I, i'm sure uh, there's some good cokes there was there was always a thing of like going all right well i got this drug and this drug i wonder what happens if i put these things together i wonder what, if i do it this way but again i never put a needle in my arm with anything it was always up through my nose or you know eating it where did the liquid ketamine story come from um so i had a dealer used to purchase liters and and she and then they also used to ship it over in um what's it called uh uh, 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 uh washing powder 
in big giant vats of washing powder, they would put like crystals in that. Like detergent. That. Yeah, yeah, that's how they got it over. But it all came from India. I knew that. And so I would just put money in the pot and then she'd turn up and go, here's your two liters of ket. And I'd be like, great. And then I'd put it on a really low heat on the pan. You had to get it just right to get the crystals. And then we started cooking it because it was cheaper than buying it. Although the reason we started doing it is because ketamine was so cheap in London. It was so like I could get a gram for like 10 quid. You know what I mean? Whereas Coke, if you want to get even shit Coke, was like 40, 50 quid. So I'd be like, oh, ketamine's way better a trip. And, you know, I, I don't, you know, get hemorrhoids from it. When's <laughs> the last time you did ketamine? Oh, God. Well, I was telling you beforehand. So one of my friends, one of my dearest friends, Louise Cattell, she died from a, an accidental overdose. She drowned in the bath after doing ket and she'd mixed it with alcohol, which you can't do. And uh, when she died, I spent another two, three months really going hard. I went hardest I've ever gone. And okay, I was waking up, just, just shoveling it in my face. And then I had a moment of clarity where I went, I've always had some voice and I think it's my higher power. I really truly believe it was a higher power. And I'm not a religious person, but I'm very spiritual. I'm very connected now to my higher power. It was it was always there in the background, looking over my shoulder going, mate, come on. What are you doing? What are you doing? And because I was, I think the difference between me and a lot of addicts is that I was very fortunate that my parents were able to send me to decent schools. I got scholarships, so I got like 50% or 35% of the school fee. So I ended up at these very highly educated institutions. I went to a good university. I, did, I worked hard. So I knew I had options. Whereas if you're a person of color from a very poverty-stricken city and you barely got an education, it, it's a lot harder to see a light ahead. And when you knew you had options, you knew you were doing the wrong thing. I was like, I'm squandering a huge potential. amount of privilege and opportunity right. and potential. So there was always some voice that just went, come on, what the fuck are you doing? Three months after Louise died, I had a moment where I just was sat in my room and I was surrounded by empty wraps and I had like, you know, K fucking powder everywhere. I'm just like looking at my life and I, and I was like, am I trying to die like her? I think I'm trying to die. Do I want to die? And I decided, no, I don't want to die. So this has to stop. And I gave up overnight. Uh, same thing happened with booze, but it took me, God knows, two decades, three decades of doing it to get to a point. But it was always an overnight thing and I never relapsed afterwards uh, so, one time. So so when you're you're giving up DJing and becoming a presenter, mm. is the K still around that? Oh yeah, yeah, and the coke, yeah. And and then and pills, had so. you totally stopped DJing at that point? Yeah, I just kind of stopped Do you and miss started it at all? TV. Yeah, hugely. I think there's a way that people connect with music. It, it it's the same thing as stand. Look, acting on stage in theater, doing stand up in a comedy club, and DJing is for me a very similar experience. You are moving a crowd of people's emotions, right? with your art. I was a selector. I was technically very good as a DJ as well. I really learned how to do it properly and to do impressive things with CDJs once they came out. I never did Serato. It was always physical. Um, but yeah, it was like, I can make this crowd. What's the CDJ? Oh, it's uh, it was effectively CD. It's like CD it as like, record. Yeah. But you could do a lot of technically advanced things with it. You could loop things. That's you could awesome. Put different points. Yeah, so you could do more fantastical things. You know, now you've got pads where you can literally have all the beats loaded into a pad. Like Fred again is a great example of a an artist who uses those live and literally plays his dance tracks live. So cool. Yeah, very cool. And I I love I love his music actually. But I think um I was 
drawn to the idea that I can control the mood of these people with the story I'm telling through the songs I'm choosing. So I put like SL2 on a ragged tip and then we go into like uh, Sister Nancy, bam, bam. Sure, and then sure. I go into like a, a, a killer's track, you know, and, and people were going, what the fuck is this? But they were dancing and I was beat matching it right. You put the beats together. Of course. So I was, it goes from bam, bam into the killers with yeah. and you don't even notice. And it still feels like it's a dance set and all the way through. And that's but very psychedelic. It was called so. mashup DJs. Yeah. We, were, we were like the pioneers of mashup DJs. I love that stuff. Someone like Annie Mack on Radio 1 in BBC, she, she then became, she was the clean living prominent professional version of what we were doing in clubs at like the Barfly in Camden, you know? Well, I think, uh, man, like I have a weird regrets. Like I wish I had learned how to make hip hop beats when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. Cause I just love the beats. And I, and I, and I always wanted to know how to do like a dance hall DJing. Like I love yes. that dance hall shit. So I've been much. the only white guy in a number of dance hall clubs in South London before. We used to go to a place called the fridge and there was another club called mass, which was in the basement of a church, an old church. And, uh, I loved it. But it was also because it was like kind of sexy and terrifying for me as well. Well, the music the white is face so there, you know? sexy. Like mm. the, the beats themselves mm. are like those, the, the classic ones are crazy. So you become a TV presenter, but you're still using. Yeah. How bad did the using get? I, I upgraded my drugs. I had money now. So it was coke. I was a cokehead then. Like a yeah. crazy cokehead? Not crazy, but just like doing a lot of coke. Yeah. You know, every night we go out, I get coke to go out. And do then you think it I would have everyone back to my apartment. And that was frequent, four or five nights a week. And then I would kick everyone out. There would be a point where I'd just go, get the fuck out. And I'd kick everyone out. You know, fucking people would be fucking on my bed and there's coke lines everywhere and like, you know, beer cans, empty beer cans, cigarette butts everywhere. And then I would kick everyone out. I'd clear my shit from top to bottom so it was spotless. And then I'd lay in the bed and I'd curl up and I would have, you know, my come down. And I would, I would never, ever took any drugs or medication to to sleep or to ease out of so no benzos no never, nothing why never did any of that shit. oh i'll be honest one i didn't really know about it it was not something <laughs> yeah. i knew about i didn't know and if i had done if i'd known you could take a pill to make your come down easier i probably would have done that um but also i think part of it was like if you're going to do the drugs you the consequences to, you have to be able to do, have the come down otherwise you're not hardcore enough to like you're 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 weak you know? I was a weakling. I could not handle coke. Well, you were clever. I could not handle coke. Just hit me in this place that I wouldn't do it if there wasn't heroin or Xanax or Klonopin. I, In fact, I would probably do coke just so I could do the, the downers. Right. Just the way it hit me. Yeah. So so when does cocaine consequences come into effect? Um, watching my TV career fuck up a little bit. How bad? Not bad. I never never had any major major issues, but I just realized that that one TV show I did this TV show called um, uh, uh, Scene Stealers, and the the premise was two teens from different backgrounds. One was a goth, one's a hip hop kid, you know, and then they would be changed into the opposite or a different scene. That sounds scene like a, that sounds switching. like a fun show. Exactly, and then they would go on a date together at the end. Nice, and they would have to guess who was the real raver yeah or who was the real thing and whoever won you know they win some prizes and stuff like that and uh i remember turning up to one of the shoots i was living a good life i really was very ungrateful for the opportunities i had i didn't realize how how much opportunity i was being given 
you know, they send a nice Addison Lee was a cab company in London. They had all these famous TV presenters had. So I had an account. They'd send a nice Addison Lee to pick me up at six in the morning. And I remember getting into it and I'd literally just kicked everyone out of my apartment two hours prior, done a big fat line of coke, you know, had a shower, blah, blah, blah. And I was awful. And I arrived and the first thing I did was I just couldn't use the restroom. Everyone knew. Right. They could look in my eyes. They were like, right. he's fucked. He's been up all night. And I go to the toilet and I remember coughing up just coke drip, just like tons of shit. And I was blowing my nose and then I was puking. Dry my eyes, come out, makeup lady had to reapply a little bit. And then I was going, all right, so scene stealers, blah, 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 blah. And I've seen some of the footage from the particular episode. And I look, I look awful. I just look awful. You can't really look good if you're up for days and then doing coke to feel better anyway. It's very hard. I it's mean, not easy. they hid it as best as they could. They, but I, I, I think I realized that was the beginning of the end of, of my opportunities if I continued. Um, yeah. I can't remember when I stopped doing coke, actually. <laughs> when I got out of TV, probably. When Why I, did you stop doing TV? I didn't find it challenging. I was not stimulated by it anymore. I was looking at the stuff I was making and going, this doesn't fucking mean anything. So what did so you do? I did a couple of documentaries first that did mean something. I did one about sex addiction called uh, Confessions of a Sex Addict for BBC Three, where I tried to revisit as many of my 700, 750 ex-partners and try and say why am i incapable of love why am i never gonna am i gonna ever gonna find love will i ever find connection and do you think you were a sex addict no i think uh we the 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 end of the documentary series was and i did stand up as part of it that was my first stand-up shows ever and the um the end of the of the show was i am a sex addict but i've now got control of it I was I was in a relationship at that time with a woman who had a child from a previous relationship. I'd given up all my drugs and drinking. I was like being a full-time father to this one and a half year old until she was five. So I was sort of, it was a weird straddling of both worlds. But we said I was a sex addict at the end of it. But now upon reflection, I'm not a sex addict. I, I, I don't need sex. Just like I didn't need drugs or didn't need alcohol. What I needed was escapism. And what I needed was validation that I was lovable. And I realized from an early age, because women shaped every part of me. My mum was a matriarch, my older sister, my aunt, my cousin, all these old aunties, remaining aunts. And um, I knew that when I hated myself, the way that I felt better was when women loved me. And Well, it's the God-shaped whole thing. It's, yeah. it's, it's so that you don't have to do it. Mm-hmm. Somebody do this for me, so mm-hmm. I don't have to do it. Exactly. Yeah, you love me, so I don't have to love myself. And so, um, yeah, I used sexual prowess and charm and, you know. Um, For self-esteem. To feel less worthless, which had the opposite effect. Obviously. Also, though, there's a certain, like, drug aspect to sex. Yeah. I mean, fucking is great. Don't it's get me wrong. Great. I, 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 I enjoy fantastic. sex very much indeed, but I don't need it. It's never something I've ever needed. I just, I think I, I just thought, well, if people want to fuck me, that means I have some worth. I think it's true. <laughs> I think I think it's fucked up because it's like we we get to get so much out of sex. You get the the actual sex, yeah. which is like a drug, and you get all the acceptance, and you get absolutely, and you you can feel like somebody wants to fuck you, mm. which is a great experience. I'm valid. I have worth. Yes. I have a reason for being this person. But then I would always keep all these women at a distance. It was always, hey, before you get into anything with me, I want you to know it's friendship and it's sex. That's it. There's no love. There's or not no love. I I misled a lot of women because I used to take them out on dates and I would t- I, I wouldn't just fuck a girl. Oh no, that's a that's a lie. I'm not gonna lie. 
I had lots of moments where I was, you know, a London Fashion Week party, coked up, I'm drinking champagne, and some models like we're hanging out, and they're like, "Do you want to go to the toilet and do some coke?" Yeah, and then thirty minutes later, we're fucking in the toilets of this bougie show. But I also used to really enjoy the company of women. I, I value women very highly, so I would take girls on dates, even if we were just lovers, even if it was just fuck buddies. It wasn't like, "Hey, come over and fuck me." It would be like hey, do you want to go to this really nice restaurant and have a meal and have some conversation and then let's go back and fuck? And then in the morning, I'd be like, all right, cool. And they would be misled. They would be like, oh, maybe something's going to come from this. I'd be like, hey, I've been frank. I've been direct. But I was lying to them and myself. It's like I wanted the connection, but I didn't want to actually form you didn't a true want the commitment. one. You wanted, you wanted, wanted a commitment. You wanted brief connection. Yeah, yeah. What happened with um, the fatherhood thing? Like that must have been tricky. Yeah, it fucked me up because... Uh, I, I again, my ex. Um, she's an entertainer, so I don't want to be too like you know. I, 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 Is it Madonna? It's not Madonna. It's not Madonna. Is um, it Catherine Zeta-Jones? It's not okay, Catherine Zeta-Jones. You've got a fixation of oh, Catherine. Yeah. You're just waiting Did for Catherine Zeta-Jones. I've never even met her. Oh, uh, unfortunately, but um, no. But she, she, I was her dirty little secret for the first year of our relationship. She was cheating on the father of her child ah, with me for a year. Right. I gave up drinking drugs and all that business to be with her and her child. Um, we moved in together after about a year and a half. I spent two years being a full-time stepfather, but you know her biological father was not a very nice person. And then I found out my ex, she treated me like I was a cheat the whole time because she knew my past and she was not very happy in herself. Um, after the mother. About, yes. After about three years of being cheated like a treated like a cheat, I cheated on her. She didn't know about that uh, at that time. Then she got angry about uh, a girl texting me who I hadn't actually slept with or done anything with and blew up. And then I found out, and then she went off and did what she did with her previous partner. She overlapped and was hooking up with a new guy for about the last six months of our relationship, I found out. And then she broke up with me, broke it off with me and said, you know, you're, you can't see this little girl. She's not your, not your child. And that really- So what happened with that? I, it, did, uh, you ever, did you ever see her again? The, no, the girl? No. The little girl. Yeah. No. And I thought about her. I continue to think about her. How many years ago was that? Okay. Over a decade, like 12 right. years ago or something. Right. That's crazy. And I think about her quite often. In fact, a friend of mine sent me, I don't know why people in England seem to, oh, have you heard about your ex or blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no. And I haven't thought about her for almost a decade. But but the kid I think about all the time. And she's she's a, you know, she's becoming a young teen now. So um, someone sent me a photo that was published in a paper and said, oh, have you seen, I won't say her name, I want to keep her private, but have you seen this little girl? You know, look at her. And, 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 I, and I read the story, the article that accompanied it, and it made me very sad. It made me, uh, Why is she in trouble, the girl? No, 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 she's not in trouble at it all. It just made not you in trouble. feel sad. It made me feel deeply sad that I couldn't continue to be in her life. I think she's she's a wonderful human being. I love her very much. I send presents every year. Do you and, still? And I got, no, okay. no, no. Because I, I they got sent back to me. Right. I was like, just take my name off it and give them to her. You know what I mean? Right. Like, but I send Christmas presents and things like that. They all got returned. I think I that phenomenon to- is not discussed often at all. No. Like, they'll, like a single mother mm. is dating and you will... The, the child you'll be exposed to the child in whatever capacity and there will be a bond and then oh she was i i was i'm your stepdad i like i was full-time I, I i still love her with my entire heart it's heartbreaking I, I will never not love that kid um and i i always wondered maybe one day 
when she's 18, 19, 20, she might, I, I would never do that. I no. think out of respect to her and her mother, like I just wouldn't do that. But I would hope maybe she'll, she used to call me Bully Bully. That was like my nickname because I had a, I have a tattoo on my, on my stomach here. And she, first time she saw it, she was like, belly, 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 belly. So Billy Belly became Bully Bully. And that was my nickname, Bully Bully. And uh, I wonder if she ever remembers that. And maybe one day she'll hit me up and go, hey, I don't know if you know me, but you I, think you were, I think right. you were my stepdad once. Right. And I, I, I said to her mother at the time, I was like, I, I, don't ha I understand that you don't want me in her life. That makes sense. I get that. You know, we're not together. Why, you know, you'll meet someone else and they should be in her life. I said, but also she's already had a dad who's a dog, like a, a, an absolute piece of dog shit. Um, who fills her with sugar every other weekend, doesn't pay any child support, makes it, he always returned her ill. It's like that shit dad syndrome. And I said, she's going to think that all the men who are meant to love her disappear and don't think about her. And I said, if you could, uh, maybe you could, um, uh, uh, you could be on all the calls, but we could just Skype and... I can just Skype with her once a month and ask her how she's getting on school, tell her I'm proud of her. Be a constant. Just be a constant person who's just, just telling her like, you, this is nothing to do with you and I still love you very much and I'm very proud of you. And, right. But I also understand I'm not a mother of a child. I'm not a single mum. Who makes that decision. It's her right. decision. Of course. It's her right. It's to. complex though. Yeah. I, I, my daughter. Well, I do stand up about it. You know, the no rebound thing. There's no rebound for missing a child but there's a rebound for any other kind of heartbreak or relationship whether it's friendship or intimate you your story though it's you it's not unique because you know there's a ton of people but people don't talk about it of course not so it's I, not interesting and it is interesting it's no just, no i mean i you know in the greatest scheme of things no, people I, don't think it's interesting oh well, well boohoo you're a dad someone for a few years and you're not anymore no, sounds like you got free you know it's i like, think it's like more like it people sweep that kind of thing under the rug yeah because it's like the relationship didn't work or what? It's just—it's weird. I don't—I—I I, I don't know why it's not discussed more because it's really the kid. Probably because also. men find it very difficult to be transparent and vulnerable about those feelings. So, but what about the children who had a stepdad for five years and then didn't? You know what I mean? You know what she told me? She bought a rabbit. She bought her a rabbit. One when when she uh, eventually went right, we're done. I want you to move out. Where it's all over. I was like, okay, so I got my stuff and I moved out. And I had that conversation. I could be in her life, you know. I can just, I just want her to not feel like you were young, abandoned. You were young, pretty young, yeah, in my late twenties. I don't want people to. I don't want her to grow up thinking she was abandoned by every man who's meant to love her, because that will have a residual effect on her that she thinks it's men trauma. can love her and just fucking ditch her in a day and forget about her, which is not the case. That wasn't the case. And uh, she said, "I bought her a rabbit. She will forget about this very soon." And she was five and a half when we broke up. So. First of all, that's fucked up because she'll go, oh, it's okay if men mistreat me because as long as I get a gift or if as long as there's something to fill the void, I'm okay, which is not healthy. Or it reassures her that that's normal. Exactly. And then the other part of it was, um, but again, my take is selfish. My take is very subjective. I, I don't know what's best for that child. I don't, she may be okay, perfectly okay. But your take doesn't you know? make it, I mean, your experience is real. Yeah. And like that pain is real. And also like, it's very sweet. Like I, I broke up with my daughter's mother or she left me because I was a heroin addict. I mean, that's a pretty good reason. It's, it's fair enough. You know, we had a baby and she left. And how old were you when, oh, sorry, how old was your child when? When, when they left? When you. Six left. months. Oh, wow. You know, she was six months and they left and I went to treatment and I came back and I tried to get back together and it wasn't happening. 
and the mother and I'm with the mother now. We got back together years later, but she was dating. I was dating. I dated women with children. And I was like, I'm not going to connect with their kids. I can't be. I don't want to be in that chain. I don't want to like. I, I would never have dated a single mother after that. Right. Ever again. I was like, I don't want to do it. And I don't want it to happen to my daughter. And I worked. And, and I, I love my daughter's mother. And I, obviously, I love my daughter. What's your connection with your daughter now? Are you. Do you. No, we're in. I we got back together. Oh, reason? How far? Five years later. Wow, but that's still hard for that kid to like go. No, but speak. I I had visitation. Right. Okay. Like I was there two days a week, every week. I didn't miss a week. I didn't miss a payment. Like okay. I was fuck even high. I was fucking there. Yeah. You know. Um. So let's get back to the story though. Uh. So you gave up drugs to be a sort of stepfather to be in their life. Yeah. When it ended, did you go back? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I was I was still doing. Was it? off on were you off off in that period did you get years at that point um no no i was not i was not completely sober i mean i drank occasionally and then i had a i had a, i booked a movie i was i was meant to be this there was this film called in with the outlaws that was meant to be went into production and i was cast as uh elvis Macbeth. it was gonna be this like sexy cowboy like he was he was a he was a bad guy he was the one of the villains Billy Bob Thornton was meant to play my dad. Gemma nice. Arterton was meant to be the love interest. Um, uh, what's his name? Um, Brendan Fraser, but prior to his his health issues, was going to be the lead. Uh, Alice Cooper was going to play the other character's father. Uh, it was this amazing production. I was, I was, and and it was through a chance meeting with a director who I met, who's like, I'm going to put you in something, and then called me in for an audition, and I nailed it. And I remember it was like that was it. I'm doing it. So I got told what I was being paid, which I think was like fifty grand or something which nice. was to me was like yeah this is the most amazing my obviously that would have been pennies to the rest of the cars but i was just grateful to be in the production so i went out and i bought a personal trainer who trained me twice a day every day for like two months i got jacked because uh, i had a shirtless scene and then i bought a suit from sir tom baker in um in central london in soho and i got this gorgeous suit for the uh the premiere and then they lost major funding two months before principal photography i didn't know what the film industry was i didn't know that it doesn't always happen so I thought, this is it. I'm going to fucking Hollywood, baby. I'm ready. This is going to be the rest of my life. And after that, I was out about 7,000 pounds of my own money. And I and I started drinking a lot of red wine, eating a lot of takeouts. So I just got like, a bit fat and slobbish. And and I started drinking a lot of red wine. I was so, so then I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm an addict, but I'm, it's excusable because I'm drinking red wine and taking some coke every now and You're then. You're an artist. I'm an, yeah, I'm, I'm a grown adult doing it. You know, I'm just doing what everyone else in TV and film does. And you're doing stand-up then too? No, no. I, I started stand-up 12 years ago. Yeah, that was... Um, what was the beginning of that? Um, I was on TV. You said, why did I stop doing TV? I just felt... I didn't feel challenged by the, the work that I was doing and I was getting really bored. And I realized I'm bored probably because I don't want to be a TV host necessarily. I want to be an actor. That's what I've always wanted to be. How do I get back into acting? Because now the industry in England, it's not like America. They don't want an Ellen. They don't want you get your own TV show. You can write the books. You can host the TV show. They don't want stars. They want an actor or a TV host or a musician. You should be one thing. Pick your lane. It's changed now. They're trying to emulate America. At that time... No one would give me an audition for anything acting-wise because they were like, haven't I seen you on a... Don't you do... Aren't you a presenter? Yeah. I mean, at one point, I did the National Lottery. I hosted the National Lottery show every week. So they were like, don't I know you from... Oh, you're on the lottery. I'm like, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do some hosting. They're like, oh, okay. So I never got auditions. And all my friends who were stand-up comics did. So I went, right, I'll just do that then. 
So I started in stand-up. First time I ever did stand-up, I was I had two XT tablets and a couple of large whiskeys beforehand. I was going to do a 10-minute set. I did 45 minutes. I had it on tape somewhere. Was it funny? Mm, well, yeah. I mean, everyone was laughing. <laughs> um, but if I watched it now, I'm sure I would cringe Well, 45 painfully. minutes high on ecstasy doing mm-hmm. stand That sounds insane. In a roof of this pub. It was called the Mon- uh, something, something Monkey in Camden. And it was like this little late night thing. And there was 12 people in the audience. And I just went on. It was, it, but it was, they were laughing. They were enjoying it. But I was fucked up. Yeah. And like. Did a lot of comedy high. Give me a comparison between the DJ scene high and the comedy scene high. Um, DJ scene high, you are everyone's high. You're everyone's in it. So it's like when I'm gurning about DJing and taking people to a new height with a, oh, I'm about to drop this fucking track and everyone knows it's going up. It's like everyone's part of it. Doing stand-up high, because I, I would be smoking lots of weed even up until two months ago. I mean, I go and do the cellar in Vegas and I'd smoke a joint before I go on stage. So I would regularly do uh, um, regularly do stand-up high. But I, it would be, it's like no one, well, everyone knows, but they don't. It's like no one else is high. So for me, it's like I'm adding an extra challenge onto how to be this funny. Right. But also it gave me a freedom. It does give me a freedom, which I'm now learning to have sober, where I can just be playful. I'm, I have no concerns. And when you have no concerns as a stand-up, you just seem incredibly comfortable in yourself, which is not really what's happening when you're taking drugs to do something. Um, yeah, and I think there was a part of me that was just like, oh, wow, I'm doing this and nailing it, even though I could forget every fucking joke in my head, but I know I can just I could just do crowd work and improvise with this guy for 10 minutes. Right. And it's even funnier than it may, my jokes might be. Right. Because it's they, in the moment. Everyone it's real. knows. Yeah. And that's in the special, actually. In fact, the, yeah, the there's spectac- a lot of really good crowd You know that stuff. segment, the crowd work with the, the ends. balls guy? Exactly. Yeah. All of that. I'm high. I'm high in that f- last 15 minutes. I'm well, you're, high but as fuck. you're really enjoying the and guy. The, it's and one of my favorite parts the of the special. Because he's so connected. And his wife is like yeah. crying with laughter yeah, and his yeah, son is yeah, next yeah, to him, like yeah, cracking up. And and but during that, I'm I'm high throughout the entire thing. Whereas the written material at the beginning of the special of the spectacular, 25 minutes there. I'm not high at all. I'm completely sober. And that's kind of what, even in the story of the dialogue between myself and ego, that I, I, we say that. It's like, oh, good luck. Go on, go on. Do, do comedy without your fucking preparation, without your suit, without your, your charm and your, your, your presence, you know. And it's like, all right, I will. I smoke a fat fucking joint. I wear a stupid shirt. I'll go on. I'll just chat to some people in the audience. But I can, that's what I love. Is like, I think there's something deeply exciting about being presented with, uh, a, a more difficult way of doing something that I already know how to do. And because I know other people can't do that. You give 80% of comics drugs and then try and get them on stage. They don't, they're not funny. They're no not way. as funny. No way. Of course. It, it, but that's also like your sweet spot, you know, where you, you, you knew it's a freedom. Operate. It's a complete freedom. It's a complete lack of inhibitions for me. So when I'm there, but um, alcohol, when I used to drink and do stand up, I was dark. I was darker and I was less I wasn't grateful for the audience and I was angry. Uh, when I see when I see comics angry on stage, you're like maybe they're drinking. I think they're drinking and I'm 9 times out of 10 it's it's true. What made you stop drinking? Um sick and tired of being sick and tired. Was man. it like that? How yeah. deep was the alcohol? I I talked about how I had to I talked about how I had to give up alcohol 
not just to everyone around me, but to myself in the mirror every single fucking morning. What would you say? I look at myself and just go, look at you. I'd hate myself. The lo- self-loathing was so deep and endless. And I'd go, you're killing yourself and you're, you're shit and you look fucking puffy. Your face is all swollen and you're, you're fat and you're, 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 you're coughing up. You like, you have to stop, man. And I said that to myself for six years. And then, and I tried at points, I say I didn't relapse. It's because I never truly got sober. That's why I don't think I relapsed. When I gave up drink, when I went, today's the day you give up drinking. And that happened after I had a suicide attempt here in New York prior to moving out to LA. Very, um, I say a suicide attempt. Ideation kind of thing. I mean, I I took a bunch of aspirin, man. I didn't even know what the fuck I was doing. I drank like a bottle of Jack and I I took like two pots of aspirin and I I just was violently sick. And then I passed out and I woke up covered in puke and stuff. I was like, well, that didn't work. I don't really know what I'm doing. And, and, And also I knew... I hope it transposes at least to some extent to your listeners that I'm not an idiot. Like I'm, I'm educated and I, 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 if I wanted to kill myself. You could have done it. I could have done it. I didn't want to die. I just was sick of feeling pain all the time. What was the misery? Where was the misery rooted in that period? Complete, it, where it self-hatred. was always rooted. Complete self-hatred. Just no, no, sense of, no sense of deserving of anything good. Any love. Yeah. You know, um, I'm... In, I'm not. Emo- I'm not gonna cry. I don't think, but I'm, I'm emotional because. I, um... We were just at the emotional part where you were about to cry, and I was on the edge. Of my, <laughs> I was on the edge of my seat, ready for tears. I think you should keep all of this in, including the panic and the. Con- I wish we had all the conversation that happened during that. I was I'd on like the edge to, of my seat for the tears. Can I tell the listeners oh, what just yeah, happened? Yeah, of course. Our so we just is, had our show is a disaster. A moment. It's not a disaster. It, we had a momentary um, concern that. We possibly lost the entirety that we just discussed, and uh, and you were very sweet and very apologetic, and I could tell you, there's an anxiety that I recognize in everyone who's had a history of addiction that I have, which is like fuck, like this is you know what it is? It's a loss of control that is very overwhelming. It can be very overwhelming and very scary. And I was like, it's all good. This has been one of the favorite conversations I had. If it's lost, we'll come in and we'll do it again. And it isn't lost, and there was no need to panic. Well, you know what it okay. is. What it is is, right? Like, and it's deep addict shit. It's like I'm a fraud. There we go. Perfect. Okay, you're not a fraud. I'm a fraud. That's what you feel. And sometimes. I'm a fuck up. And and I and at the same time, yeah. the show does better now. So I I'm like, oh, I'm very impressive. I get you. I I have this and that, whatever. And then and you have so much to do. You're you're on a big tour no, just no, at Sirius, no. Jim Norton. No, I put you in good. this edit room, make you fucking spill your guts forever. I'm having I'm having near tears. The best conversation I've had in a long time. You know, I, I yeah. It's interesting. I avoid talking I've avoided talking about most of these things over the course of my career because I think we're we're made to feel fearful. For good reason. Like I don't if you think talk that's about why, this, though. No, no, no. For, for the good reason that if you talk about it, you will fuck up your potential future career. I don't think I would have been able to have this conversation of this kind of transparency with someone like yourself even a year ago because my ego was still such an important part of my identity. And uh, this is where and now I've led it right back into where we were. That's good. The reason why I get upset and I cry at the end of my spectacular when I watch it, I watched it yesterday, the live premiere with my my two friends I'm staying with and I got really upset and I started crying and it's when ego 
I don't I don't want to ruin it for the viewers. So please go watch it. Please go watch it. But uh, Ego goes, oh, well, you don't need me then. You know, he sort of saunters off in a kind of, oh, whatever, fine, you don't need me. And he comes back and he goes, you know what? Before I go, fuck you, right? You ungrateful piece of shit. I, you need me. You need it. You created me because you fucking need me. You can't do any of this shit without me. And it that anger, that it's fear. It's all fear. It's all insecurity. And that is what, and I do know what it feels like to go, oh, panic and stuff. Because I felt that my entire life, that fear, that, that fear of just being what I am really, what I morally and ethically know myself to be, because I didn't think anyone wanted it. Because I felt fucking worthless. And I won't ruin what I say to Ego and how it finishes because I'll let the viewers enjoy that. But it makes me cry because every time I see it, I know that I created that identity. He would, Even though Ego is the worst part of people in most way, in most situations, it is such a necessary part of people. It protects us. Because it protects us. Every weakness, insecurity, self-loathing thought there's a reason I'm still alive and it's because that dickhead with the fucking rings and their long hair and the skinny jeans and the I'm bra look at me I'm so confident and crazy and rock and roll I'm naked in the middle of a club and I'm DJing and I'm jumping off the decks and I'm fucking taking more drugs than anyone else in the room is taking that is what kept me alive that's what kept me alive that that identity but it's not me and it's not the best parts of me and it's a bit that I don't need anymore and um, I would never have been able to have this kind of a conversation with this kind of transparency a year ago because I would have been terrified. My ego would have said, you'll fuck up your career. No one will hire you. Don't talk about all the drugs. Don't talk about these things. You, It's too vulnerable. You're putting yourself too much out there. Whereas now I'm like, I don't give a fuck about those things. I give a fuck about living transparently. I really give a fuck about telling stories that can people can empathize with and hopefully connect with even if they're not drug addicts even if they're not alcoholics even if they're not people who've been through everyone has been through some trauma sure and that's the point everyone has lost someone they love and that's the point and that's why there's that dramatic arc throughout the the project that ties you into the comedy yeah 40 minutes of it is stand-up don't get me wrong if you love stand-up you'll love it subjectively you know if you're into my comedy no it's funny it's really funny the Thank stand-up you. but is it's really not gonna be good. for everyone it's not gonna be for everyone which i accept but the reason the arc is there and the story is there because really what I'm saying is I'm going to be better. The next thing I make is going to be funnier and more personal and more revealing because I don't need that false identity anymore. You well, know? it's like it's like the, 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 the ongoing inner conversation between your ego and your, your true self is, is the crux. My of higher it. self, yeah. But like who I talk to the funny thing or the fucked up thing is that my belief and, and it's not my belief for you. It's, right. it's my belief. If I project myself into you, okay. the reason that I would never tell the story is because I'd still want to get high. And if I told the story, I'd never be able to get high again. Why? You you tell the story because you... I'm saying if I... Would, oh, I see. By talking openly it about it. It means that you, it, go, you can't oh, well, do it again. I get you. It keeps it safe by yeah. not talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so... When you stop, where was the mushroom story in your story arc? Was mushroom. it before you quit drinking or after you quit drinking? Oh, no, after, yeah. So I gave up booze four and a half years ago. Did you I turn up, up in, an, in a meeting at that point? Like, how'd you do it? I did go to meetings, yes. Um, in uh, LA, there was this little cafe that I used to go to. Tropical? Um, which, it, no, it was, um, it was uh, what was it called? I don't know. It's, uh, <laughs> it was, um, 
it was a weird little like Turkish restaurant that's like kind of that they kept open for an extra hour. The owner was clearly had some history with, you know, addiction or whatever. I don't think he was an addict, but I think he knew someone. He was someone close and and um, I loved it because it was the only meeting in LA that didn't wasn't full of beautiful people talking about how I remember my first time doing this, that, and the other. It was it was it was fucked up people. I liked it because everyone there were missing teeth and memories and their soul. And and that made felt more real to me. And I didn't need to speak in those all those meetings. Whereas in the all the other ones everyone needed to speak. I can't remember who got me into the first meeting. It might have been the actor friends convinced me to go to my first one. And I went with her. And then after that uh, she didn't want to hang out with me for a while because I was still smoking weed and she went, you're not sober. In fact, I remember I wanted to get my chip and she went, oh, she took my chip off me. That's cheeky. And, and I say I had, cheeky only because you're English. That's fucked up, I think. I don't think that's fair. She introduced me to one of her friends who took me to some meetings and he was my sponsor and then he stopped talking to me. He just didn't want to, maybe because I was smoking weed. I think, I think, uh, which is not, that's not unfair. I think... Taking the chip, I think it was just her going like, look, you'll realize this eventually, but you are not sober. You can tell me you're California sober, blah, blah, blah. And she was right. I do agree now. In fact, we had a long discussion about it the other day. But the guy that I got connected with, my sponsor, didn't just disappeared on me, just didn't want to sponsor me anymore. Did just, he say anything? Nope. See, that's crazy. Yeah, that fucked me up a little bit. That's crazy. Like, but it's not how sober is it's that not crazy guy? it's it's indicative of an addict who has their own boundaries he this person has set their boundaries and said, i know but there's nothing wrong with saying listen jeff i i'm not comfortable i with also you don't know high. what went on in his personal life he may have relapsed right. i don't know i don't know right so i don't judge i don't care to judge or to assume i just think i'll judge for, for, you. for whatever reason this guy couldn't do he couldn't do it he couldn't do that anymore yeah. so then i stopped really going to meetings and then yeah, and then um, mushrooms. I had taken mushrooms a few times, uh, very occasionally. I'm, I'm, I mean, like a handful of times over the course of my life. You know, oh, if they were at a pie or a festival, sure, we'd take some mushroom caps and trip a little bit. Never done hero dose. I'd done like two grams or whatever, a gram, two grams of mushrooms. You get high, fractals, all of that. Business. I don't think I've ever done a hero dose. Five it's, or seven grams of mushrooms. I mean, the, the therapeutic Maybe applications four, four of psilocybin, I think, are transformative i'm very glad that they're doing clinical studies again and they actually have opened all that up again after they fucked up so many soldiers with acid and mushrooms back in the day trying to get them to become telepathic weapons MK of war Ultra, yeah, yeah fucking crazy yeah. all that shit but mushrooms are i have a lot of thoughts about mushrooms if you've ever seen that documentary fantastic fungi the concept that mycelium is this planet this planet is mycelium it is filled with mushrooms of all type in our mouths we have like a thousand different types of you know mushrooms fungus or whatever grind, yeah fungus right, grind. Yeah. we are made out of mushrooms we are it's part of us i never saw they, this movie they take it's a great documentary fantastic fungi on netflix you watch it and um you know they feed trees from one tree to the other if one tree is lacking carbon or or is not getting enough sunlight mycelium from the roots will transfer what it needs wow. from one plant to another it's it's healing i the first time i took mushrooms it's because my best friend killed himself my dad killed himself they were both suicides just one was very slow and from booze and one was very rapid and from some kind of drug that he got from a, a veterinary clinic that he used to volunteer at that just stops your heart um your friend yeah yeah and um how long had you known him 
oh, I don't know, fifteen years. I don't know. He, he's my he was my brother. He was he's, I'm godfather to his children. He's like he should have been best man at my wedding. He, he he's I, the, he was the man I loved the most in the world ever. When he died, my heart broke. Uh, I've never I don't I didn't know what the word heartbreak is. I've lost love and been oh very dramatic because I was depressed and you know on drugs and drinking and thought it was heartbreak. I felt my heart. I felt my heart like break. I felt it break. I, my chest was in pain. Ah, the wailing, the wailing, man. And uh, thank God I was with my fiance at the time because you know she was, yeah, she was instrumental in so helping. So what me happened? Her. What happened to your friend? Like why? What, what was? He was the deeply deal? depressed and fucked up. He had mental health issues, and he actually tried a bunch of different therapies. You know, um, psilocybin, MDMA treatments ketamine treatments but he was doing i think he was doing too much of everything and he was not right he hadn't had the therapeutic growth to move to a place where those treatments would have had the impact they could have done i don't think you should just do mushrooms to get over your addictions i think you should see a therapist talk about what it is you're trying to achieve really start to accept some things about yourself start to process how you escape your problems and then to that, you can add doses, small doses of, of mushrooms, you know, over, over time, and and do it guided, do it with a, a medical practitioner. Did he have a family? Yeah, yeah, two young kids, very young, and um, a beautiful wife, and who's you know one of my besties, and and uh, the He's children from England. Yeah, yeah, he was from the UK. He struggled with a number of things and uh, a number of things in his life, and it and it hurt him deeply. And he was really, we were we were all sensitive boys. My dad, sensitive boy him sensitive boy it's almost like sensitivity in men emotional depth and sensitivity is not curated protected or encouraged in a lot of young men i see it more and more now as well there's a gen z now a, 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 a whole generation of people who are allowed to be sensitive but in other sides it's 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 demonized you know you're, you're weak you're soft you're you know you're, you're not cool Whatever it is, yeah, it's like I get fucking it. kill yourself. Kids say that to each other on the internet all the time. Kill yourself, kill yourself. It's like so. I I took mushrooms a million times, or no, I took mushrooms a, a fair amount of times in my life. Socially though, and like as a party drug. Well, I mean, it wasn't. I mean, I took it to trip out. You know what I mean? Like I was a stoner, and I like right. took a lot of acid, and and we would sell mushrooms, and I would eat mushrooms, and I just enjoyed. I mean, I think there was some sort of like pseudo attempt at a spiritual experience through them but it was never like a real thing were you doing the work no the other side of the work no, like, All right, Zero, so no it, work so it, no it, work. It, it doesn't work i think unless you're doing the therapeutic work on yourself at the time and i was a the kid mushrooms I, I, I was a kid yeah but like never had i heard heroes dose hero dose right. and ne i mean like i had friends who took too many and like lost their mind yeah I, yeah that that would happen um, with mushrooms or with acid and DMT and things? Because mushrooms, you don't lose. Even if you take a shit acid. ton of mushrooms, you're trip balls. But eventually, you come back down. Whereas acid, you take too much acid. You could go. And not oh, I have a fun acid story. Please. I've only really done acid once heavily. I've done it a bunch of times, just a little core of a tab, you know, or like yeah. little, or one tab. Yeah. I did four and a half. No, five and... No, four and a half. Four and a half full tabs, which effectively would be um, 18 tabs, 18 normal tabs. And I tripped for. Hold on, how did, well, give me the math on that. Why well, well, so was four and a half? 18. In England, in England, you used to attack like you would get 
you know, the little square tabs, but they would be in quarters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you were meant to take like a quarter or a half of one of those things. But I, I took four and a half of the full things and they were like heavy doses. I tripped balls for 21 hours. It was fucking insane. We uh, started in the evening. I was like, these are not even working. And I had one, I was like half an hour, like, this is not working. So I had more, yeah. had more. We had this little crystal of uh, MDMA that we had in a first aid box that we go and suck on it at some point. It was like our first aid box. All like, And we were living above a place called Marathon Bar. It was like a kebab shop where Oasis used to come in and play late night no sets, way. like the Gallagher brothers. Yeah, or uh, um, uh, literally the Rolling Stones. Like one night, Jagger was in there one no night. Way. No, no, I'm no jokes. Libertines used to go in there and do play because it was the last place open that served beer, but you didn't buy the beer. You paid for a raffle ticket. And if you won your raffle ticket, then you got given a free beer, a can of Red Stripe. So basically you go in there and give like quid 50, you get your fucking beers, you know, get your things and you get a kebab and then you sit in the back and listen to music. We live, I live with a bunch of art students above there and we were all fucking and paint, laying on the floor and painting That's around great, ourselves, yeah. just doing this weird shit, you know, dressing up in wedding dresses. I spent, that 21 hours in a wedding dress, walking around Camden Market. <laughs> oh, yeah. I took about 3,000. I was on TV then, so I took 3,000 pounds out of my bank account, spent it all on booze and drugs and all sorts of shit. We, I've got a book called The Little Book of Acid, and it's a, um, a bright orange, of course, because the color spoke to us, uh, exercise book that I wrote as we were experiencing. We wrote all down. I've still got it sitting in, in, my, in, my, in my little drawer at home, and I'll, I'll, someday I'll do something around it. And uh, it was nighttime when we started tripping and we walked through Primrose Hill and then we went down to London Zoo and we heard all the animals and the lions and something moved in the grass and we thought we were being chased by alligators. We went to this bit that turned out to be a yoga center that we thought was a UFO because all these lights lit up as we were approaching it. Crazy fucking experience. Great. Yeah, great and and weird. And I, I was worried I was never going to come out of it. I had that fear. I remember sitting in my friend's toilet back in Marathon Bar up, upstairs or sitting in the little toilet I'm looking at this painting. They had this old painting they got from a thrift shop that was of a, sh a ship on a very stormy sea. And I'm watching the painting and the ship's just... Yeah. And there's a little guy and he goes... And I'm watching the waves crashing. I'm feeling water that's not there. I'm like staring at this thing. And the walls are just moving in and out, wobbling. And I remember sitting there. This was 19 hours in. And I remember sitting there just going, I'm never going to... Oh, I fuck myself. I'm never... This is what... This is those people you see crazy going, man, you don't even know what I... You know, I'm like, I'm going to be one of those guys because I'm trapped in it. LSD casualty. Yeah. And I can see... And I had I had flashbacks. I remember sitting on a bus once and everyone's ears started becoming long like dog ears and getting really hairy. And I had to get off the bus. I was freaking out. But that's the one and only time I've done acid like that. Heavy, yeah, and heavy. I, I have friends who 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 took too many too many trips and and never were normal again. Doesn't or, it just open your pineal gland kind of endlessly? You just like have it just floods your mind constantly with dopamine. So I think people who probably have co-occurring mental illness, the acid kicks it in, or or that happens with weed a lot. They say that with mushrooms as well. If you have a history of psychosis, That's you where, shouldn't right, do right. It can kick it in, even hereditary. Even if you don't know you have a psychosis in the family. You can take those kind of drugs and you just don't really come back from it. So when did you start with the hero doses? Um, in the last year. So after my dad died and Pete died, I was really uh, struggling to heal. I was really pained and I was struggling with some of my, I was smoking a lot of weed. Like I bought two pounds of weed from a dude and I was just sitting around just morning, noon and this night. This is the life. Just stoned all day long. And, and still achieving, still doing loads of stuff. I've always been highly functioning, but 
not feeling good, still very depressed. I'm eight months free of depression. After three decades, from the age of eight, I was depressed. And I thought that was who I am. I'm just depressed. I'm an emo kid. I'm just miserable. I just have depression. It's clinical. It's not true. I, I, I wasn't clinically depressed. In the special, the, the depressed in your brain is one of my favorite. Oh, yeah? <laughs> one of my favorite. Oh, in the animation yeah, part. Yeah, yeah, So for those who are listening, the, the animation has yes. these characters that represent different parts of my mental illness. And one of them, I love anger is a great depiction, yeah. but depression is, is the one. You like him. Well, I could tell that it's very deep. In I you. like addiction because addiction is the kind of captain of the ship. Oh yeah, yeah very yeah, yeah. purposefully, and yeah. he's older. Because, he needs the dank. Yeah, he Addic- needs that dank, dank. Bring me that dank. dank. Addiction needs. He the was dank. a little bit of Sarian and McKellen. Yeah, actually. yeah, I like yeah. him. But he's um, yeah, I uh, and anger's an interesting one actually. Anger's. Did you ever have anger? I have it now. I I have anger. Now you're sober. You're angry. I I anger is. This is- Bullshit. It's so boring. No, anger g- gets me out of nowhere. I mean, the other day, I'm with my five-year-old. Right. Yesterday. With Five-year-olds my, are infuriating. She's infuriating, but I didn't, I didn't get angry at her. Me and her are leaving a birthday party, and we're walking downtown to meet my cousin on 50, 85th Street. We're meeting my cousin on 58th Street, and I want to beat them walking with the stroller. So I'm walking really fast with the stroller on the Upper East Side and some lady is on the phone and she walks in front of me and I, and I kept walking like I nearly hit her, but I wasn't going to hit her. And she stopped and she's probably an old Jewish lady and I'm an older Jewish man. And she gives me this look and all of a sudden I'm a kid because I grew up here. You and regressed, I, and yeah. I looked at her and I, and I was like, and she keeps looking at me, looking at me. And I said, what? I was like, what? And she goes, what? I go, I'm walking with a kid. You're on the phone. Why don't you move out of the yeah, way? Yeah, why or am say, I being punished or say, for excuse your me. ignorance? And, and then, and then I'm, and I'm feeling really good <laughs> about yelling at this lady yeah. on the street. And my daughter says, Daddy, what's going on? And I said, oh, this lady gave me a dirty look. I say to my five-year-old, it's like, where the fuck am I? Where the fuck am I? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where's, your, I, where's your emotional regulation? And yet your five-year-old and she, has and I, more emotional regulation. And than, I know it was scary to her. And, I, and, and I'm like- That's therapy, man. I'm, I'm still working. I had my first therapy, therapy back last week. Good, good. You know? Because that's the thing that I've been working on for the last year. And I think a lot of men need to work on it is emotional regulation, especially if you come out of addiction. And get into sobriety. Ugh. It's the world is overwhelming. Everything's overwhelming. I'm the eight years in though, and I think I should. I yeah, don't but it's often, never done. It's never a job that's done. It's ongoing it's I don't, for the rest of your life. I don't often yell at old ladies on the street yeah. as much as I would like to. I never did that. I punch walls. I hurt myself. I've broken my knuckles so many fucking times. I'm gonna have the worst arthritis. I got a, so you can see that big scar through my hand. It was a glass, a bottle, a wine bottle through my hands jumped into a fucking or fell into a canal and like just injuries i hurt myself well, I, that's how i feel how do i get over this pain damage myself ah oh, i feel something you know like well, and was, that for me is like it was last week though i'm fucking angry and i'm listening to people at meetings talking about anger is just fear you know you're afraid absolutely you're afraid of of not being who you want a little be. boy in you who, all that shit and yeah. then you wind up getting angry and I, and and my sponsor was like you need to bring love to that. And I'm like, I'm going to bring love to that. And I tried and I tried and, and I could mm. until I couldn't. And then I'm still fucking reacting. You know sure. what I mean? And it's, But here's the deal. The more 
the ongoing dedication to try and sort that thing out, it becomes less and less and less and less a part of your life. It becomes less a reaction that you, it's behavior, it's learn, learn behaviors and you unlearn them. And that takes time <clears throat> and it takes dedication. And I interrupted you before. So Not you're about I interrupt to say everyone, something. I apologize. You're about to say something though and I started talking about my anger and the audience hates it when I interrupt and I interrupt all They're gonna the hate time. both of us then because I do that a lot and that's even been something that I've had to work on actually is shutting the fuck up and letting other people speak and that's I the, have to work at it. That's the first tenant of Long Island recoveries. Keep your fucking mouth shut. It's a good one. Anyway, fucking hero dose. Oh yeah, yeah. So I'm, uh, yeah, so Pete, dad, dead. I'm deeply depressed. Starting to have some suicide ideations again. I, I, I own a firearm because, you know, I, I uh, when I, when I, uh, you know, my fiance is a woman of color and I, we went to Black Lives Matter marches and I've been quite, upset by the civil unrest in this country and when i saw neo-nazis literal neo-nazis in california threatening people who just want to be allowed to exist without you know being shot in the back of the head or treated like animals uh, i went no i'm, I'm not going to be the liberal-minded uh progressive who you know gets i I'm, I'm still there's a bit of me that is a bit ghost from call of duty i want to be prepared so i bought a firearm and um i definitely put a loaded gun against my head and I went I not with any intention to shoot myself just wanted to know what it was like just just knowing I could is Terrifying. enough not really for me exhilarating actually I'll be real exhilarating for me and also um and also it, it's for me it's like all right well this is the most extreme thing I can do to know whether I want to be alive or not and I did I was like no I don't want to die I want the pain I'm feeling about these two men that should be my dad should get to see my unborn children grow my best friend should be the best man at my wedding and be uncle pete to my kids but they're not and that's because they couldn't deal with their pain and i'm like them and am i going to do that as well is that what i do because if i should if i if it is then i should do it now and then i went no i don't want to die i have never wanted to die even though i've done a pretty good job at trying it on a number of occasions and technically for a few seconds achieved it in some way oh coke deal went wrong in lithuania once when i was a dj and got kicked in the head by two guys and robbed kicked in the head until i was unconscious and then had like golf on the side of my head doctors told me if it was one inch to my temple i would have been dead the near-death experiences have been plentiful and every time i've been like thank god i didn't die because something my higher power my voice was telling me come on man there's something there is a reason for you to live so that gun against the heads, once I put that down and went, okay, well, I don't want to do that. And I have, that's that that's a real moment of the fucking aspirin and, 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 and JD. Wasn't the thing. Wasn't the thing. That is going, this is real. I could do this now. Boom, and you're, it's over. And you're not Done. drinking. And I'm not drinking. I was smoking a lot, but I'm not drinking. So I'm feeling. That's a hard part of sobriety, feeling everything, everything all the time. Anyway, so after that, and I put that down, I went, right, well, then something else needs to happen here. So I was already talking to my therapist weekly, have been for now four years. I, in fact, this guy for two and a half, who's incredible. I realize I, you I still own, have the weed ring. I do, yeah, which I like. I, I like still, it I, still, I think marijuana has a, uh, an application. I just think we digest it the wrong way. You're an ally, a stoner ally now. I am a stoner ally. Well, you know what I actually think about weed is that we're meant to do it in a shamanic way, in the same way that like you take mushrooms. You're meant to burn a lot of it and inhale it in and out, in and out, in and out, and trip and experience a connection with nature. 
you're not meant to smoke it rolled up like this and just get a bit high off and it. And watch Arrested Development. Yeah, which is why actually the Jamaicans, um, Rasta, Rastafari, they have a thing called a chillum pipe. Sure. Um, which is like a coconut with a big clay pot. You pack it with the like chalice. half an ounce. Yeah, exactly. And the way they smoke isn't like people smoke. They they you have to you can't you have to be able to smoke that to even join their circles. By the way, their prayer circles. That's the sipping chalice. But what exactly? And the way you do it though is you breathe out all the air in your lungs. You and then you blow blow the air out of your nose as you start to inhale weeding again. And you do that cycle until you trip. And I did it with my fiance's Jamaican uncle in Florida, he got the chillum out. This is when I was still smoking a lot. And um, it's the only time in my entire life I've got tripped. I've tripped from weed. I saw, uh, f- uh, not fractals, it's not like you know mushrooms, but colors became incredibly vibrant. I felt an overwhelming sense of connection and peace to all things. And I was like, oh, this is how you're meant to do it. You're meant to burn it over a fire in a shamanic way and inhale it and inhale it and inhale he's it. He's a Rasta, your uncle? Talk. Uh, no, no, no. He was, he's from Jamaica, her, her uncle. He was, he's from Jamaica. So he's not a Rasta, but he got his chillin' pipe from, uh, from the Some Rasta. Some Rasta artisan. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Well, no, from a, a circle. They, they made him, sorry, and then they gave him the chillin' when he left. Anyway, so yeah, I think we digest certain things in the wrong ways. I think it's, it's grown here. There's a reason for that but we just digest it in the wrong way. And that's why it's legal now, because it's another way to keep people fucking medicated, dumb, slow, and and un, unable to achieve what they could, what their potentials are. Keep, keep people away from their potential. You know, miseducation, misinformation, alcohol. Alcohol, why is that so fucking widely available? You know, it's a, it's a depressant. It kills co- more people every year thing. than anything else. Yeah, no, it's not. It's more than that. It's a control thing, man. I think it's absolutely... Keep them dumb, keep them drunk, keep them stupid, and they won't really think about their situation too much. They'll never look upwards at what's going on. But it got built into the culture of America, England, uh, England the world in a huge culture. Way. Yeah, so except, uh, uh, everyone's a binge drinker. Would in you England. please tell the mushroom story? Oh, yeah. Sorry. <laughs> so I go away to my friend, a uh, comedian, Jenny Zagrino, very talented lady. You should look her up. She uh, had a little Airbnb in, uh, in near Joshua Tree place called yucca valley i think so i go out there and i i'm like i'm pain i'm in pain and i'm not healing from this pain of these this loss of these two men i'm gonna go away and i'm gonna do mushrooms and i'm gonna do a lot of them and i'm gonna try and connect to a higher power i'm gonna try and deal with some trauma i've heard this can help and i was there on my own so i took five six grams when i ate them straight away yeah so they, they were in capsule form so i just emptied out all the capsules i actually got some lemon electrolyte drink which speeds up the process and i just ate 28 capsules or whatever or 32 capsules and then drank a little of that and within 10 15 minutes i was coming up um oh no this is wrong that's the second time i did it first time was in big bear with my friend andre and i went up there with him and he said let's go do mushrooms he was actually my sherpa to some extent of the hero dose i spent most of my time in the bathroom first of all it has an incredibly cleansing effect on my body i shit out some toxic liquid that i've never ever seen come out of my body that was pure neon yellow and was um there's a lot of mit studies about psilocybin the relation between psilocybin and gut biomes and how it can heal gut biomes and it that happened for sure i uh, hemorrhoid that i'd had for months healed healed instantaneously just my muscle just the the the, the vein just stopped being angry because i was probably not holding on right. to the hatred of myself right 
I looked in the mirror. Oh, I streamed snot. It, uh, the, the, the power wasn't speaking to me yet. It was unspoken communication. Once I let go, you have to let go. There's a moment when you trip where I, I like to close my eyes. I'm outside. I'm looking at the trees. Trees growing. I can touch air. I can, I'm connected to everything. The clouds are me. I am the clouds. Boom, boom, boom. Let me go inside. Let me go to the toilet because my tummy started getting funny. Had that shit. Close my eyes while I'm on the toilet and feeling all this physical release. And um, seeing a giant eye. Oh, first of all, we're all connected. I have like an umbilical cord coming out of me that goes to this giant brain that has millions, uh, an endless number of umbilical cords connected to everything. I can't see exactly where they will go, but I know every person's soul connected is connected to everything. Everything's connected to this thing. Then this giant eye comes over the top. And it's almost like, you know, I thought about Rick and Morty. Show me what you got. You know, those giant heads. Imagine one of those existed. Right. Like this just eye that is the size of a planet comes over the top of me. And I felt petrified. And I was scared. I was scared. I was scared. And then it fixated on me. It saw that I was in pain. And my vessel, my human body was broken. And it, I kept asking it, help me, help me. Like, help me, help me, help me. Please talk to me, blah, blah, blah. And then something unsaid happened where it just effectively was going stop asking fucking questions and just be let go so i let go and i'm part of this euphoric fucking everything and it went inside my body and it did like a you know like mechanics do a check on your car where they go through the computer check diagnostic 152 point check wherever the fuck it is it did that on me and it went stomach fucked knows you've been smoking weed haven't you and you you're putting all this carcinogens into your throat so i coughed up phlegm my nose started streaming streaming dude shit coming out of me i didn't even know was there my sinuses were i breathed i felt like i had um a seven thousand horsepower engine in my in my in my chest afterwards anyway all these physical things happened and then i looked in the mirror and i cried joy joyful tears and it just said you're you deserve to be love man you're you're you are love you are love so i said the word love over and over and over in my uh, vocally my buddy <laughs> must have been listening to me just to go like love 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 and i believed in the power of love for the first time in my life potentially i felt it unconditionally for the first time in my life for myself which i've never felt and then i went outside after a bit i cleaned myself up you know I had a little shower and washed away the you know flushed the shit away there was toxic and all this oh and tonsil stones came out as well i regurgitated two tonsil stones wow what are tonsil stones tiny bits of bacteria like basically little minuscule particles of food if you have your tonsil still can get trapped in the little tiny and they came out the mushroom just fucking oh it just cleared you out pushed it out do you mushrooms heal you man They, they, they they can literally Heal your body. And you had said you had said you were basically depressed since you were eight off and on. And do you think this, this was the beginning of the end of the it depression? It was the beginning of the end of the depression. Um, but the end of the depression came with my second mushroom trip. And for people in recovery that are listening, how often are you taking mushrooms? I've taken them. I've only done three doses like that. And it's medicinal. Yeah, yeah. And I don't... Spiritual journey. I will no, never use them. I would never use mushrooms um, recreationally. How often do you anticipate doing the spiritual mushroom cleansing? I think it, it, it depends what your experience is with it. I think you have to gauge it on what your personal relationship is to it. For me, I will do them, I think, for the rest of my life as as long as they have a purpose, a spiritual purpose. If I take them one time and, and 
my higher power says, you don't need this anymore. I won't do it ever again. But the latest time I channeled a thing called channeling, which I didn't know what the fuck it was. I told my buddy about it. I was like, uh, I spoke to my power directly, had a conversation, and it spoke through my throat at first. It was literally in my breath. <gasps> oh, I can't talk. It was like shit like that. It was super trippy. It was exorcist shit. And I came out of that experience and I went, uh, that was fucking weird. Uh, what did it what say? was that? Um, a lot of shit that I knew. It was like, like you, I, I've always been with you. You just lost the ability to relate, relate and see me. You, you, you have built so many barriers to hide from me. It's. I, I tried to ask it very specific things, like, "Is the world going to fucking get you know hit by an asteroid? Are we are we are we on the path to destruction?" Blah blah. And it said, "Don't worry about that just yet. We'll discuss that in future times." It said it did say though, "You have that power inside itself. You are connected to everything." I felt Nirvana on the last trip. I was. Uh, you, uh, one with the universe nirvana like uh, a, a euphoria and connection to everything throughout the entirety of time in it's where it, were you we see time as linear it's not it's not linear it's just our human minds are that fucking limited i guarantee that early advanced human civilizations including the one thirteen thousand years ago which they've just uncovered uh, um, ancient apocalypse you should watch that documentary series very fascinating They've discovered monolithic structures of an advanced human civilization that predates what all archaeologists have been saying for years about, oh, there's two ice ages, blah, 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 blah. There was another one. And they've found carbon-dated proof now, huge structures with intricately carved jaguars and leopards climbing up the walls. Like, no way they could have been made with rudimentary tools, you know? I believe that that prior advanced human civilization were shamanic, and took mushrooms crazy psychedelicized they took culture. mushrooms and they were connected they and i believe that we can they they converse telepathically and all sorts of shit yeah because me and andre talked for about five minutes without saying a word and then when we came down from our trip when having a little bowl of soup in big bear on looking at the beautiful lake out there i said hey earlier on you know when we stood and just looked at each other and i was crying and you were crying at one moment when we were just looking at each other and we were smiling and then we laughed i said in my head we had a conversation i could hear what you were saying and I was saying this, this, and he went, I was saying this, this, and this. And what he told me is exactly why I was hearing. Now, could that just be shared, you know, shared experience? Could it just be the, a moment of love and connection between two men who respect and admire one another? Yes. But it doesn't even but matter. It was the specificity. Uh, spe- 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 specificity. Thank you. Specificity. Specificity. That's a, that's a little tongue twister. Specificity. It's easier if I do it as Ian McKellen. Yes. Specificity. Yes. Frodo. Yes. Um, of the conversation we had, we tested each other. I said, don't tell me exactly what. I, 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 it's like kids trying to I sing each other's songs underwater. Like, I won't tell you what I heard, but right. tell me what you thought you said right. and vice versa. And the exact, there were very specific things we said. That you picked up on. That we conversed about without conversing. I think we are capable, our minds are capable of incredible things, but we've lost our way. And I think we've mostly been coerced into doing that and misled. How connected do you think you stopping smoking weed to the mushrooms? Oh, 100%. Mushrooms told me, bro, you're fucking killing your body. Enough is enough. It, no, it, it, no, it said you can keep doing this for the rest of your life if you like. But A, it, you will never achieve the things you want to achieve, which is a higher connection. It starts with breath. Breath is one of the most important things, one of the most important powers that any body has. If you can control breath, 
you can heal your body in ways you can which is all true i mean the practice of meditation and yoga there's no there's no surprise it's that these breath. things are so it's all breath but what about eating it then oh uh yeah you, i guess i could still eat it but you don't oh no i, I mean i i could I, I would i would eat edibles i guess yeah i don't i don't i'm not against that necessarily i just don't it's no no need i don't want to be dulled i don't want to be dulled anymore if i was going to do weed again smoke weed I would do it in the way I've described. I would get that pound of weed from a guy and I would burn it all in one go. Right. I go, do it that way. Yeah, let me get some cheap weed for 500 bucks for a pound and let me just fucking burn it in the one ritual go of it. and do it ritualistically. But it absolutely said, I don't know if it was trying to avoid me getting fucking cancer in the future or something. It was basically going, what you're doing is you're blocking your, your sinuses, your throat's fucked, your lungs are fucked. You're working at 50% capacity, my man. Don't do that. And what about your recovery, though? Like, since you stopped smoking, has your recovery changed? Has your connection... Well, my depression has completely dissipated. I no longer have depression. In fact, I never had depression. So what was it? A cloud of darkness that I think I deserved. Uh, uh, an endless self-loathing that I assumed was a default setting. A cage that I was incapable of seeing the way out of. So what do you do... I mean, what do you do if that... I would never, by the way, I would never... Ne I don't want to die. Uh, I would, I'm sorry. I'm not scared of death. When death comes, I'll be completely ready for it, whether it's tomorrow or... But you or don't plan on holding the pistol I would, I, would never, I would never endanger my own life again in any way because I see the beauty in living. What do you do? Are you fearful that depressive thoughts can come back? No, because I've had a multiple... Uh, I've had a multitude of reasons to be very depressed lately and some things that have happened. And uh, I've been sad. I've been in pain. I've been low, but I've never been, I'm not depressed because I know that this isn't, you know what it is? There's a part of it. When, 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 you're, when you're an addict, when you're in your, in your depression, you think everything that happens to you, you're deserving of it. It's the world conspiring against you. This always happens to me. Happens to me. Why is it always Why is it me? me? Yeah, yeah, Why is it me? me? I deserve this. I bring it. And then when you free yourself from that kind of thinking, you go, this is not me. This is the world, man. This is the chaos of the universe, of the cosmos. There's shit days and there's good days. You can't have the joy without, without the pain. experiencing the pain. Right. And if you experience the pain and accept it and then go, that was painful. I will do healthy things to move beyond that. I'll talk to my friends. I'll, I'll open up to my partner. I'll speak to a therapist. I'll go and do some breathing to calm down. I'll, I'll emotionally take me and Andre regular. Will eat six grams yeah. of mushrooms. I'll scream wilderness. at that old Jewish lady. <laughs> no, but you won't. See, you, you'll get to a point eventually where I want to be at a point where even when someone is trying to put anger or pain in my way, and I think that's what fucking Jesus or any of these, you know, spiritual beings of you know uh, prophets. How are. do we bring love to these situations? Yeah, just feeling like just knowing it's not about you. It's not about you. That's another thing addicts do. We're very self-absorbed motherfuckers. Oh yeah, it's all me? about me. I'm the center of this pain. No, you're not. You're on a planet that's spinning a thousand miles an hour, being pelted by 250 million meteorites a day. It's a miracle you're here. With infinite other, one, other entities feeling the same thing. One in a trillion chance right. that your spunk right. was going to be, your sperm was the one that was going to make you in the way that you've turned out. You're a fucking miracle, dude. Spunk. Enjoy spunk. Jism. Yes. Sperm. Would you... Uh, Love juice. Yes. And I think that your story is fucking hardcore 
very psychedelic. Yeah. I didn't expect the psychedelic aspect. No, did I? And I didn't expect to have healing from it in the way that I did. I think I was trying to find another escape that first time. Would you do me one more favor and tell the, the ridiculous mushroom eating story in New York City before we're done? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, so the, uh, okay. So this isn't the spectacular. Um, I was about six months into being, maybe less than that, four months into being in, in no, I was. it was like two months into being in New York. I didn't have yet my New York State ID. Okay. That's how I remember. That's why I got arrested. I was at the cellar. I did a show. After the show, two very attractive Swedish ladies come up to me and they're like, hey, we're here partying. You're so fun. You're so cool. Do you want to come to a party? I'm like, yeah, let's go. Let's go. As we walk into a bar, they go, hey, do you like mushrooms? We got some mushrooms <laughs> from a friend of ours in Brooklyn. I'm like, yeah, let's do some fucking mushrooms. So they give me these mushroom caps. I have like a couple of caps, you know, and I'm like, oh, I'm going to get pretty fucking high at some point. Go into a little bar, a little dive bar. We're having a few drinks at a bar. Some dude who's like on coke, drunk, nasty, like little dude, quite jacked, you know, but like shorter. Was it Aaron Berg? It was not Aaron Berg, but it could have been. It would have been like a, a South American Aaron Berg. Okay. Um, he comes up and he's like hitting on one of the girls, but he's aggressive. He like grabs her ass and she freaks out. She's from Europe. She's like, don't fucking do that shit. What the hell's going on? So she kicks off. I'm, I've always been that, especially then. I'm still drinking then. Bear in mind, I'm still doing all the things. So that was my identity. I'm six foot four. I have to be the guy that always fucking. And I think I liked being the guy who had to lay down the law because that's my excuse to cause anger and to channel my anger into something that feels like justice, right. but really is just an extension of my weakness. Ego. So I'm like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, and he's like, whoa, 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 man, whoa, whoa. I'm just, I'm just talking. I'm going, no, 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 you're assaulting her. You want to fucking step out? He's like, bro, bro, I'm just coked up. I'm coked up. So he goes, sorry, man, sorry, sorry, sorry. It's all good. It's all good. We're cool. We're cool. He offers to buy me a drink. I go, I don't want any fucking drink. Fuck off. He leaves. I feel it's all cool. He goes to the other side of the bar. It's a busy bar. So me and the girl, she's like, oh, it's crazy. I'm like, sorry, you know, it's all good. It's all good. We're getting ready to go to this warehouse rave they know about. I feel a tap on my shoulder. It's like 15 minutes later and we're finishing our drinks. I feel a tap on my shoulder. I turn around and this guy just smashes me. Is this that guy? Jaw. Same guy. Sucker punches me in the side of the jaw. Now, I'm a little fucked up. I'm loosey-goosey. He might have dropped me if I wasn't fucked up. So I'm like, whoa, jeez, whoa. Anyway, I've got big rings. I wear all these big silver rings. I open up his head. I cause this huge gash above his eye that's like literally a couple of inches, two and three inches across the top of his head and it's pissing blood because if you bleed here, it really gushes he's got a white t-shirt he's covered in blood i drag him outside the bar there's no bouncer on this dive bar just the bartender who's like jumps over the bar and like, get the fuck out so i grab the guy by the throat and i push him out the door slam him onto the ground on the, on the street outside and i kick him fucking two or three times and i'm like stay the fuck down stay the fuck down it's done it's over it's done all right and then i go back inside the bar and the bartender's like you got to get the fuck out as well i'm like dude you saw him fucking punch me in the face and you saw him hit on that girl like aggressively and touch her. You know what I mean? I'm like, you're going to push me out there. So what? We can kick off another fight. Anyway, I, I tried to pack up my bag that I have. And like, I'm, I'm the girls, I'm like, come on, let's go then. Let's go. And, and I go, can you let us out the back door at least? So there's not another fight. Because I don't really want this to continue anymore. I was having a good time up until that. The guy comes back in, grabs a chair, throws a chair at the bar. And it like bounces off the bar, almost hits a bartender. Bartender now jumps around and grabs him. He's reaching over, grabbing bottles and throwing them. And I'm like fucking dodging it. It's like a Matrix movie. Police come in, grab him, grab me, because I'm obviously have been involved in this. You know, I've got a big fucking bruise here. My lips are a little cut. And he gets let 
go. They 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 take his ID because he has an ID. They go right. And this is how it works in America. In England, if you get arrested like that in a fight, all they do is they grab you, they grab me, and they go, you come over here, you come over here, and they go, right, what happened? Oh, he punched me first and blah, blah, blah. Okay, what happened? Oh, well, I pun he punched me first. They'll ask the bartender, they'll look at some CCTV, they'll see what the truth is, and if you punch me first, they'll come to me and say, do you want to press charges? Right. And if I say no, they'll go, all right, and they'll go back and go, don't be a dickhead, fuck off home, and that's it, it's done, right? Or if they say, yes, I want to press charges, they arrest you. That's not how it works in New York City. They grab us both, and if you have an identity, uh, like some form of identity, they take down your details and they go, right, you'll have to come and appear in court. Right. Um, I had no idea on me. I had my cards, and I was like, I live in an apartment, but I moved in there, so I had no idea. So they go, right, we're arresting you. We're taking you to the state. I'm like, I am the victim. Fortunately, I had enough intelligence to go, I know I have to tell them what's going on. I'm the victim of a crime. I need to be treated from medically. I need to go to the hospital. And they're like, fuck. So they call an ambulance. They get me in the back of the ambulance. I'm handcuffed and they grab my little bag. They throw my bag of shit in there. And when I'm sitting in the ambulance, I'm sitting down with my hands cuffed behind my back and I'm I'm scared. I'm 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 of course. Upset. Stranger I'm, in I'm, a strange land. Oh, I'm 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 very very worried. I'm like in tear. I'm tearful. You know, all my all that tough machismo went straight out the window, all my adrenaline's pumping, and I was like, God. And my heart's pumping, and then all of a sudden, all the mushrooms kick in when I'm sitting in the back of this ambulance. So I come up super fucking high, and I'm trying not to fucking like just feel like I'm feeling like moving around. The sirens going off. I'm tripping. I obviously I make more of a joke of it in the stand-up set, but I'm really fucked up, and I'm trying to hold it all down. Fortunately, because I have done so many drugs to such excess over the course of my life, I hold it together. They just think I'm my adrenaline and my sadness and whatever. I'm like you know tripping out. When we get to the hospital and we're going into the urgent care, the police officer gets out first and goes, come on. And he grabs, I go, could you grab my backpack, please? I can't pick it up. And he goes, oh, yeah. And so he grabs my backpack and he goes, right, get out. And he's not looking at me. And as I stand up, I'm like, oh, my fucking God. I've got a tiny little baggie with two more mushroom caps sitting in this little pocket on yeah, the jeans, yeah, yeah, the drug yeah, pocket, yeah, I call yeah, it, you know, because there's no yeah. other purpose for it. Uh -huh. So as I stand up, I slide my hands round to the side of my hips and as I stand up, I crunch one, I get one finger into there and I crunch out the little baggie. And as I stand up, it's in the back of my hands. So now it's behind my back. He grabs me by my arm, starts leading me towards the um, the urgent care. There's a homeless guy laying next to the entrance of the homeless care behind sleeping bags, a bit of cardboard, blah, blah, blah. Who's just watching shit that's going on? He's fucked up as well, probably. And he's watching me and the policeman get out. He's like, oh, what's going on here? I start walking towards the door, and as I do, I flick the baggie behind me with a mushroom Did you do the cap. proper flick? Yeah. I nice. Just, I just flicked it out of my hands from scrunch up, and it's a tiny little light baggie with two mushroom caps, so it makes no sound. It's not it, it, The police officer didn't give a fuck. He's dragging me towards the door. Boom. And I see the homeless guy is looking at me, and he just like gives me a nod, a really slow, yeah. knowing nod. Like, you just made both our nights so much fucking bad. And it was a beautiful little moment of like – I stifled a laugh i couldn't believe what was happening but then i went inside the hospital and i saw a guy die a homeless guy died in front of me when i was inside there waiting i was handcuffed to a chair while they were checking me out and a guy got brought in and they tried to resuscitate him and he died literally six feet away from me it was it was a very surreal night and then they put me in uh the tombs which is like the new york i've been there you've been in the tombs yeah, twice. it's not nice no not nice no, at all and i was in there with real gangsters yeah, like there was the only a, thing in there there <laughs> it's, was it's bad there was something some gang activity going on that night because there were two groups who were telling each other how that's they were what happened fucking to kill me each other. that's what happened and i was in with one of the groups and yeah. i'm just sitting there going i am not cut out for this shit i would not do well and in you prison tripped out. and i'm tripping yeah anyway 
they release me because they I go I want you to see, see go see CCTV like go and look at the fucking footage they keep me in there for like almost 48 hours because it's on a Friday so if the judge no isn't worries. in over the weekend you might be there until the Monday um, fortunately I got seen before that and like they had some someone in who and they did a decline to prosecute they went oh he started well, yeah. and then they told me that he's already got um, two arrests for starting that, fights that dude. the other guy I'm like why don't you check these things before you fucking drag me and put me in a cell and the ADA actually said it's a very flawed system. She yes. says, she said this this is not she goes, but that's why they do it this way, you know. It kind of the paperwork is where all the money comes from, you know, putting people through the system. And like now that you're like this you take mushrooms spiritually, do you reflect back on that story like in a different way at all? Yeah. I mean is yeah, I mean I I reflect back on every drug experience I've ever had. That is just I I don't look at it necessarily well, it is wasted time. But I don't look at it as wasted time because all those experiences have shaped have shaped me into it's a man. It's led that, us to this moment. Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I'm exactly. with you. And Jeff, I cannot thank you enough. You brought the fucking dopey. Thanks. Serious spiritual healing. Yeah, How do man. you feel? Do you feel you feel good? I do actually. I feel quite. It's quite nice talking through these things with someone. It's like a meeting, an extended meeting to some extent. You but know, it's where also, I get to, it's very interesting stuff. Like I don't think. Uh, I've never heard that side of uh, mushrooms. Really? Like that. Did I, you watch the, more, the Last the of Us? Of, yes. Yeah. 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 And yeah. do you think that's the anti version, uh, the negative <laughs> version? What the fucking heads opening up because yeah. of mushrooms? I mean, that exists. You know, those like, have you seen those bugs that yes. get, their brains get yeah, controlled very frightening, by? Very yeah. frightening. One day, maybe. Who knows? Thank you, Jeff. Thank you for having me on. I oh, appreciate dude, you. Super yeah. Fun. That's Jeff Leach. I love that take it's a new voice for the show which i love i love that there is no one way into this thing and there's no one way out and we all have our stories and all of all of our stories are worthy and we're all special 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 snowflakes especially fucking jeff leach and his heroic dose of psilocybin which i love so check out Jeff's comedy special, which is, of course, called Jeff Leach Presents a Comedy Spectacular, available on YouTube. And I think we, we talked about it in the show, in the talk with Jeff Leach. Jeff's publicist is a woman named Pam Loshak, who is one of my best friend Peter Loshak's sister. And if you're a hardcore Dopey fan, you remember Peter was on the show twice he lived with me and Todd a million years ago. He did a very suspicious or suspect. I don't know if that's the right word. He did a very dubious impression of me that a lot of you guys liked. And hopefully one day Peter will return to the show. But it was just very random that Jeff's publicist was, was Peter's sister. It was crazy. I never spoke to her before this. So I like things like that. That shows the... Uh, synchronous aspects of the doposphere or dopeyverse are still intact. Oh, fuck. I forgot to tell you guys that all of our clothes are 20 to 50% off. Join Patreon. Ray Brown was just on. My dad was on twice. Fucking DopeyCon's up. I'm about to put the Grandmaster Flash video up. If you're still listening and you're not a Patreon member, that's shocking. So join up for Patreon. Buy some dopey stuff. Stay strong, Dopey Nation, and fucking toodles for Chris. Oh, yeah. Fuck it. Listen, this is a long fucking show. 
and I was talking with some dopey people. I was talking about there are two dopes in the doposphere or dopeyverse. Do you guys prefer doposphere or dopeyverse? Anyway, there's two dopes out there. One is named Ben Croxton and one is named Piz. And they wrote a dopey parody called Dopey Too Bad. And I've refused to play it on the show, but somebody was like, why don't you put it at the end of the show? And that was Lizanne. So you guys should thank Lizanne because you were so desperate for it to be on the show. Here it is. And please, if anyone's still listening, send in your comments about Dopey Too Bad. There's there and look for more dopey parodies coming week after week, unless you hate the dopey parodies, but they will go at the end of the show. Here is Dopey Too Bad by Piz and Ben Croxton, followed by I Wanna Be Good So Bad by the Great Ray Brown. Stay strong, Dopey Nation. Fucking toodles for Chris. Walking down the road, stole some money from my dad. Fighting in my home, paranoia drove me mad. Dopey podcast. We were snorting and a shooting and a drinking and a moving dopey podcast.